Welcome to the Director's Club with Brad and Al. Over here on the Director's Club, in each episode, we take a look at the films of a single director. We look over their whole body of work, taking a look at their legendary films, films that received great critical acclaim, um, and hidden gems amongst their filmography, and personal labors of love amongst their film work. You can never tell what kind of connections and themes might come up when you go over all the films that a director's uh, been able to do. So come join us on the film journey. This journey is now taking us to the work of a French-Canadian filmmaker, uh, Denis Villeneuve. Uh, Hello, everyone. I'm Al. And I'm Brad. And we're uh, lucky enough to be joined today by the uber master of ceremonies of the Now Playing Network, of which the Directors Club is uh, proud to be a part of. And he was the original founder of the Directors Club. And we we welcome him to join in on our exploration of this guy. How's it going, Jim? Try to pronounce my name. Jim (laughs) Villeneuve. Jim Jim Lechkowski. Lechkowski, I I I guess nobody ever knew that Denis is my dad, so I figured (laughs) I'd come on the show and promote his work. Yeah. So how are things going, Jim? Things are going spectacularly well. Um, I'm now a member of the Chicago Film Critics Association, which is a great honor um, you know, it gives me a little bit of perks, but also I get a say in what gets nominated at the end of the year, which in this case, this year, no, I don't know what I'm going to pick because <laughs> there's not a lot of great stuff out there. Well, congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you very much. You and know. you've already, I think it's already brought you some benefits in that you've managed to, uh, you've attended some fests already. Yeah, and yeah, the Cinepocalypse uh, Festival. Mm, the which, big genre festival that happened in the, at the Music Box. Yeah, I, I I didn't get to see as much as I wanted to see, but I, I had former Directors Club co-founder Patrick Rapole join me for some reviews and uh, screenings over there. Got to meet uh, Simon Barrett, of all people. He's the writer of Your Next and The Guest and... You know, I had some nice things to say to him and his work with Adam Wingard. Nice. Uh, he is one of the great um, vanguards of the retro uh, yeah, of the yeah. retro eighties horror revival. Yeah, I would I would say so. Although you know, uh, Blair Witch, the, <laughs> their their take on that the Blair Witch was not work, was not didn't work at all, unfortunately. But anyway, uh, also Larry Cohen was there and Eric Roberts to present the thirty five millimeter print of the ambulance, which was a joy to see on the big screen with Eric Roberts in attendance so it was a really great festival overall i mean the only thing that i would say stood out the most in terms of new stuff is a film called tragedy girls which i kind of i I kind of think of it as heathers meets scream where it's very very self-aware of the genre or the uh just sort of the mythology behind serial killers and integrated with a little bit of um social media stuff Right. So, yeah, it's a, it's quite a, it's quite a fun ride uh, that I recommend. Did you catch the uh, Suspiria uh, remaster? I did, and uh, I will at some point. Mm-hmm. I'm sure it'll come back. I was very very lucky to attend that. It yes. actually had Simon Barrett introducing Jessica oh, Harper. Oh, very nice. Very and nice. Jessica Harper was a, an incredibly fun presence. She I has bet. this wonderful sense of humor about being well known for a star of this in bloody and gory horror yeah. epic by Dario Argento. And my one of my favorite things that she said while during the interview was she was mentioned that. Suspiria originally did not have a really good reception in the United States. Very true, yeah. And the way she described it was like this, and I'm trying to quote. She said, people in the U.S. weren't expecting 
a slasher slash crime slash art film. Oh, well, there was a lot of slashing going on in the movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> She's so, also in one of my favorite De Palma movies. Ah. Right. Phantom of the Paradise. Yes, and that, that got brought up a little bit as well. And, nice. and so yeah, it was really lot, great to see her. There's a lot there, a lot to see. Uh, so I'm, I'm looking forward to next year already. I think it's a really good fest. I like that it's not all based around horror, but just different types of genres. Science fiction and uh, action movies. Mm-hmm. You know, they even went back to, uh, like, uh, Blaxploitation. Excellent. The fest as well. So. Yeah. And now that you're a voting member, we're going to look forward to your picks uh, for best of the year. Yes, and I can't wait for everybody to hear the special year-end uh, bonus episode that Patrick and I will be contributing here, uh, where we talk about the films of 2017. Mm. And and I don't know how you're going to even have the room to do that because you have so much on your plate. Indeed. You have a art academy that you're uh, helping to uh, run, and on top of all, and running Voices and Visions, and uh, keeping the now playing network umbrella constellation up and running. And on top of all that, you have a you're doing oh, a charity yeah. CD. With, that's amazing, man. Yeah, it's been a, it's been delightful to have the, the number of musicians that have contributed including Tracy Bonham who you know had a big hit in the mid to late 90s with a song called Mother Mother that I remember seeing on MTV and being quite a fan of and she reached out to me I don't even know how she got my information oh, fantastic and just kind of went like yeah I'd love to contribute uh, this a song to this compilation and this compilation uh, goes to help all the victims of Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico. Uh, so people can go to relief.bandcamp.com to see the full track listing. And as long as you donate $7 or more, you're making a difference. And that's all I wanted to do. It's a great cause. Now, the filmmaker that we're talking about today, what's one of the things that interests you, um, Jim, on, on Mr. Denny Villeneuve? Ooh, well... A lot of things. I remember a couple years back, um, I saw this film called Two Doors Nicole, and I have no idea if that's how you say it, but it is a French-Canadian film. Um, But it's like this coming-of-age dramedy of sorts, shot in black and white, that really spoke to me. And I remember kind of having this epiphany, similar to when I... um, really got into Ozploitation films, was like, I need to just check out more from, you know, this region of, you know, uh, filmmaking I don't know too much about. I mean, obviously I'm familiar with Canadian genre and Canuxploitation and things like that, but uh, I guess I just haven't explored French-Canadian cinema specifically. Uh, but I think it was around that same time I caught Polytechnique, which we'll be discussing, and... Uh, that was courtesy of another film podcaster named Jay Cheel, who put that on his top ten list for that year. And I remember seeing it and kind of being really, I was really taken with Polytechnique in terms of like how visceral and effective it was as an experience. Um, I, I wouldn't say it holds up as strongly as I did on a first viewing, but it was at that point I took note of this filmmaker's name. But then I guess I skipped it over Incendies? <laughs> I'll figure it out eventually. On Sundays, which is French for fires. Um, but anyway, like I skipped over that one, and then I saw Prisoners, and I was like, I don't know. Do I like this guy? I'm not too crazy about this one. It got a lot of raves and a lot of notoriety, but I just, I don't know. It didn't connect with me. And then the triple threat of Enemy Sicario Arrival. That's when I said, this guy is my jam. <laughs> like I just I finally 
all his work clicked with me and i think it's because it's very direct and it really expands upon this idea of existential terror and questioning identity which is something which which are just themes in general i really respond to um you know i I don't know if i could compare him to any other modern day filmmaker and i think he's very original in that regard maybe he's like an amalgam of different films and filmmakers throughout his filmography but uh I i i still think he's he taps into something that uh, I would say is a, a unique feeling for me. And a lot of that stems from just like his confidence behind the camera. And I think he's a, he does a lot of interesting techniques that I'm very, very fond of. So we'll get more into it, but I am overall like huge. I, he's, I've, I've added him to my top 20 favorite directors. Wow. We're on a, uh, we're on an interesting run here at the director's club. I'm thinking because when I'm, when I'm looking over his work for this episode, he is a, another variety of a kind of altruism that we mm. looked over from the last two that we've done. James Whale, and before that, the mighty Orson Welles. Orson is a this, the prototype of what the auteur was in oh, terms yeah. of being able to express his, his themes. And, and as we were talked on on Whale, like Whale, is, Whale has his own interests, but mm-hmm. in different ways his stuff got stymied by the studios. And one of the things we brought up that uh, was part of our discussion was how Bride of Frankenstein was kind of almost like some anti-reaction of being put in the Frankenstein box. Uh, And so it bursts forth to being like almost a commentary upon itself. Mm -hmm. And so so he's kind of stymied by it. Wells is informed and infused by it. And I think... Villeneuve, over these course of these films, I found that he's his concerns are continuously un, uh, uh, underlying on the films that he on the films that he's making, and he and this is an example that I found that he puts a level of thought into what he's doing, but he lets the thought wander. In a kind of maybe perhaps Michelle Gondry kind of way. Well, he's not just making movies because he loves movies. He has something yes. he wants to say. He has yeah. themes that uh, he's really interested in exploring. Uh, you mentioned some of them, Jim, you know, not seeing things at face value, questioning what's in front of us. Yeah. But one thing that I'll disagree uh, that you mentioned before is kind of the idea of originality as far as uh, of, uh, his filmmaking technique, because I kind of view him as more of a Tarantino or Paul Thomas Anderson type who, uh, on a genre level, okay. is constantly taking from familiar I can, sources. I can see that, but I don't, see, I don't necessarily see that as a bad thing, I guess. Oh, no, that, that, that yeah, I, I think I'll have some criticisms sure, sure. later, but I, on that particular basis, Tarantino and PTA are two of my favorites, so that's not and, a criticism. And I would just say that, at least for Paul Thomas Anderson has shown during his career, he's being able to pull influences from, from different subjects and from different styles. Yes. Well, obviously, Boogie Nights is... Uh, supercharged Altman Scorsese power for one for to take just two examples. However, he's shown also in works like There Will Be Blood to be able to make these singular things that are that don't have any direct relation 
Yeah. At least I think that's, so. That's happened more. <laughs> Ooh, I might see a Kubrick uh, influence on that one. A lot of people do. I, I, I think, you know, especially with the master and inherent vice, I don't see like the usual um, influences on the sleeves that he used to have back with Boogie Nights and even Magnolia to some extent. And I think Denis Villeneuve is a very direct director. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of people find him to be a pretentious director and sometimes in things like Enemy with his, you know, we'll get into the spider imagery and even with, I, I remember hearing something about Prisoners where it was like, it's almost it's almost too bleak and just like it's constantly raining and Jake Gyllenhaal is constantly blinking in this weird, <laughs> affected way all the time. So I mean like, I can understand people having quibbles with a lot of his films and i do for a couple of them in particular but you know in the case of enemy sicario arrival i have very little in terms of um issues i i think brad made a really interesting point in that when whereas some authors their authors i mean their authorship is they know what they want to say they know what they want to explore this is a guy who i think as we'll look at through his movies Part of his authorship is that he has these questions, and he's yeah. asking these questions about himself. And that's the thing about asking questions about yourself. Sometimes you don't know the answer, or the answer doesn't yeah. come. Or the answer is messy, which that's I think right. which is, happens yeah. in a lot of cases here. And so I think there's undeniably this uh, talent going on, but I don't think it's it's yet been honed and... My my hope is that his best film just hasn't been made yet. Right. We may be seeing the the genesis of an amazing artist. And we as we look over the course of his movies, we'll see how his visions has expanded and changed. For um, sure. And I don't know if we had the opportunity, though, to see like his first film. I correct. know I haven't, which is August 32nd on Earth from 1998. Uh, I, I, again, I didn't see it, but the plot about it is about a woman who survives a car accident and then makes it her mission to have a child. And so she meets a man who's willing to impregnate her, but he has a condition that it has to happen in the middle of the desert. <laughs> what? Yeah. That sounds wild. Yeah, I had no idea I was making films back in the late 90s to where I'm like, I got, I, I'm curious now to see some of the earlier work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he seems to have uh, some kind of phase thing going on or a, li- or a little bit of a break between... Yeah, like, yeah. And it's also, I just want to get a quick tangent to say, this is a person who's... It's very strange that like some of this work is actually very hard to get, even though this is only like less than like 20 years in the mm, past. Yeah, that's true. And yet there, and that's ridiculous that a filmmaker like who has attained this level of popularity and recognition, mm-hmm. it's that hard to get his it's that hard to get his work. And unfortunately, that's also a similar case for his next film, Maelstrom, in 2000. I took a fish head. This is a film about a, which starts off with an image of a really hideous looking fish that is on this chopping block at a, on a bloody table. And as this big burly guy is about to hack him, he starts talking to us in the audience. 
What? And he, yeah, and he tells he relates this story uh, um, set in the present day of of Bibiane, who's a shopkeeper and daughter of a celebrity, whose life is just falling apart from uh, stresses from work and from a recent abortion she's gone through. Um, now, have you guys had a chance to uh, view this? No, uh, this unfortunately film? not. I, yeah. didn't, I didn't find this. How did you find this one? On, on yeah, I, w- I looked all over. I couldn't find it. This was on a Netflix DVD ah, disc okay. rental that oh, I managed to get. People mm. are still doing that these days. Yeah, I and, should probably get on that. And uh, if you like Villeneuve, you should check that out because it's a very interesting origin point. Sometimes you. You can look at a movie where you can describe it a certain way that kind of gets the gist of it. Mm-hmm. And this movie, it's super weird to say, it is as if Guillermo del Toro directed a Krzysztof Krzyszlowski movie. Whoa! That's an interesting combo. Because yeah. as Bibiane's story is, is moving along this spiral path, she has... A violent encounter, and she goes and reacts to that, and try and tries to. On following up, she goes on a story akin to like blue or red or some of the Decalogue of like hmm. fate and coincidence. But every so often, it cuts back to this fish, and the fish is just relating the story until he gets his head hacked off by the by the fishmonger. Upon which. The fishmonger pulls another fish, who then starts talking in the exact same voice. Huh. Now, how does this fish stuff play? Are, are, are we buying the fish stuff, Were you uh, the fish as narrator? The fish is where the del Toro thing comes in. Okay. It ha- it's, it's ugly and pulpy. And looks like it's been traveled through the um, near the nuclear plant in the Simpsons uh, Spring, uh, Springfield location. Yeah, yeah. And or the fish farm in the, existence. And yes, <laughs> it has it has that level of fish farm uh, of fish farm uh, yeah. disgust and some tra- it's translucent and so on. But it does have that del Toro sensibility of having being captivating in how vulgar and ugly it is. Hmm. And and the different things that. Bibian encounters, sometimes they lead to like some outcomes where there's like a piece of flesh that's found lying on the street and different bits of stuff just show up in Bibian's world as her world uh, worldview starts to descend. So is this more surreal than is it? I mean, is it along the lines of Enemy where it's like it taps into that kind of like absurdist slash surreal? Where everything is like, you know, I mean, where he, he, like you're mentioning the fish, I'm just thinking of the, like all the cutaways to different spider imagery or just things that, you know, he focuses on. Specific mm-hmm. details, I guess. I think what uh, Villeneuve was trying to do is he was trying to do an absurdist joke to say, what if the person narrating or what yeah. the narrating story, because death also features in Bibian's story in a part where she is involved in a car accident upon which a guy who's killed. And this person's job was as a fishmonger. So this fish imagery just keeps coming in. Okay. And you're just like wondering, is this the, the fish's story? And especially how it keeps the fish keeps coming back. Hmm. And so I think what he's trying to do is he's trying to go and say, 
show the absurdity of humans trying to live, uh, put in motives for their own life in a universe where there are no rules and and at any moment a human being can be dispatched by a car accident or what have you, just like the fish is in the middle of telling his own story mm-hmm. and the fish gets dispatched. Huh. Now, unfortunately for me, it's like a Keshlovsky movie. Uh, while acknowledging his obvious great qualities as a director, I'm actually not a fan of the guy because I think he has a little too much self-regard towards his themes. I, when I watch his films, I never get engaged by, mm. with, with a few exceptions like Red, I never get really engaged in those stories. And I just see that he's having a thesis and he's saying, oh, look at what this is like about fate and coincidence. <laughs> Can't you appreciate this? That's I think, I think, and that sense is also coming in from a snarky way. Yeah. Aren't we all just fish? And it's just, no, not really. <laughs> I, don't, I don't mind, I guess, like the, like I mentioned earlier, the directness of themes sometimes doesn't bother me. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't like everything, you know, spelled out to the audience to where, you know, it's literally like a character is saying, this is what the movie's about, everybody, don't you get it? You yeah. know, I don't like that. I don't like it when characters spell it out. But... I don't know. There's something about certain directors, and this is definitely one, he's definitely one of them, where it's like maybe maybe less so with Enemy, but I think a lot of his films are kind of like this is what it's about. Don't you connect with it? Don't you understand what I'm trying to convey to you? But on a philosophical level, they're very existential, and I like that quality. So mm-hmm. it's like it reminds me of Dostoevsky, and to some degree, I kind of appreciate it when you just say, "Guess this is it," and you're either gonna lo- you're either gonna yeah, let, let it wash over you, or you won't. And I think it just does for me on a regular basis. His look at this absurdity clearly, it's something that he feels that it would be charming to give to an audience. And unfortunately, he tend, uh, he underlines it by having a jaunty kind of French accordion score when people do inexplicable things in the movie. You have this jaunty soundtrack to go, isn't this a weird? Isn't this weird? So and we don't even is- have the, the lead uh, performer grounding the film. It's kind of, would you say it is more in the enemy mode of surreal throughout? No, I actually think her performance in general, uh, Marie uh, Jose Crozet, as, as the main character, Bibian. I think she does ground it quite, uh, ground it quite well in, in terms of making it feel like it's a real character. Mm-hmm. However, like many a Kieślowskian character, she ends up doing inexplicable things. Like, imagine some of the more obscure things that Ver- Veronica and Veronique do in The Double Life of mm-hmm. Veronique. Imagine a movie full of those, and your only guide to try to explain how this world is working is a continually mutilated fish. <laughs> so, Sounds like a good time to me. So, okay, I mean, it's if you want to engage in the idea of this kind of absurdity in a gross level yeah. of, of big-time existential human questions, that's kind of what Maelstrom is exploring. And it shows, I think it shows a good origin point for Villeneuve, is that he's appreciating this kind, these these themes as you describe it, Jim. And he's looking at that and also has a sense of playfulness about it to just, he's not afraid. He's not taking it too seriously? Right, he's not reluctant to go in weird directions that just seem to interest him on maybe even a subconscious level. Yeah. And just see where those come in. But on top of that, the intellectual underpinnings are also there too. And this is something 
you see it in a kind of a maybe a raw form. Uh, the, a sushi form, as it were. I was gonna <laughs> in, say in, in, in this in this film, the, 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 there's a dichotomy, and I okay. and this is something that I I find, and we'll take a look at as we go into the further films that he does. But his next film, Polytechnique, in 2009, nine it, years later, right. In this film, he takes a look at a fictionalized versions of events of an actual mass shooting that happened at the Polytechnic School in Montreal in 1989, and he looks at, um, in this particular event, a the killer separated female students from the male students, and then proceeded to target the female students by saying that their radical feminism had had like oh like yeah. become so oppressive right. and so the film looks through the viewpoint of two of the students one of which is a woman who was caught in this hail of gunfire and another by a male student who was who left when the yeah. gunman ordered and what the repercussions was well, he survived the school. Guilt. He's still dealing with that. Exactly yeah. right. And we get to see the perspective of the of the of the shooter himself, like early on, just lonely in his apartment, and you know having. I guess the the uh, narration would probably be what he left behind in terms of a note, which is an interesting choice to like have. You know, the narrator recite exactly what the shooter said in his, I guess, suicide note. Mm-hmm. Uh, more because the narrator is not the voice of. The, are of the killer. Right, hmm. right. Which is really, yeah, I think it's a very challenging experience. It's not something like, oh, I can't wait to sit down and watch Polytechnique. Um, but it's, I don't know, I've, I've, I know a lot of people champion uh, Gus Van Sant's Elephant for, for the reasons of it being just a pure visceral experience where you're immersed into this. But you're also, you know, experiencing the mundane qualities of like getting up and going to school and you know walking the hallways and looking for your friends and you know here you're basically just kind of divided between three different characters at three different times and also sort of i don't know if he did this in 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 maelstrom but he likes to split up narrative quite a bit he likes to maybe jump back and forth um in time a lot and similar to what we experience in arrival i think that he is he challenges just linear narrative structure in general. Mm-hmm. So uh, Elephant is a film that seems uh, very intent on withholding yeah, a yeah. lot of information from us. It, does this film go as you know deep into the psychology of the tragedy? Uh, yeah, I th- I think it, it shows. It's interesting because it shows some of the, some of the aftermath as a result of this tragedy, but beforehand. We get to see everything that kind of led up to the tragedy. With the you know you see the the, the point of view, not the point of view, but just the what the shooter is 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 feeling and going through emotionally, and just like his feelings of. And there's this inter- interesting shot where he's looking outside his apartment window and seeing, 
I, you know, like maybe a, a girl his age and kind of like maybe just this guy's just never been able to socially connect at all with women and feels resentful towards that. I think we even had a shooter here in the U.S. very, who said sim- similar things and like even mentioned on like his YouTube channel or whatever. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, that, that was very upsetting. Just like, you know, misogyny gone completely awry to such an insane, violent degree. It's just, it's hard to watch. It's hard to watch anything where, you know, there is no, there's no stopping this horrible thing that happened. And in a place like Montreal, where these things very rarely happen, you know, I mean, Canadian gun laws were altered because of this shooting, essentially. I don't know why it hasn't happened here in the U.S., but um, Mm. seriously, it's like they had this one giant mass shooting in the school, and they were like, what is going on here? Let's get more, you know, strict with gun control. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I think, like, a lot of it's just a a purely emotional experience. Um, But I do think the acting is really good in in this film as well. This this has shares something with Maelstrom. In both films, he's asking the question posed by uh, the noted philosopher David Byrne in um, when he says, "And you may ask yourself, how did I get here?" Yeah, the characters in Maelstrom are constantly just wondering how are things so the situations the way they are, and the perspective they do in Polytechnic of the killer is notable in that Villeneuve takes his time to show the killer doing ordinary things, but I don't see him doing, showing us anything by way of explanation. You see a point where he's in the car during the snowstorm about to enter the school, and he breathes really heavily and hangs over the steering wheel. Why does he do it? Why does, when, why does he decide that this is a moment to leave? We don't know, but we do get the time to see that. And there's a very I think there's interesting a scene notion, that though of like there's a happy couple walking in the background while he's sitting in his car and I think something in him just gets triggered by that. I think just the sight of people being able to socialize and connect with one another sets him off. And mm-hmm. it's like you know, he just resents women. Yeah. You know, and that's it's, it's a horrible reason to do what he does, but he just has no control. And yeah. it's, it's really sad to just see this take place and randomly, just like, you know, oh, you just happen to be a woman and you're, you're standing there, you get, you get shot. And that's all there is to it. Like, yeah. he spares most of the men, if I recall. After ordering them out because those yeah. are not the, the people that he's concerned with. Right. But time and again, he just, you see him pause and you see him shoot someone or don't shoot someone. You see him shoot a couple people and then leave. Yeah. And it gives. I think there's a, these shots are really held. There's not a lot of cutting going on. Right, right. But there isn't a lot by way of explanation. Um, and it's interesting, very interesting to compare this with Elephant, where it's, Elephant is Gus Van Sant's sort of mission statement of the parable of the elephant, mm-hmm. where if, if a bunch of blind people touch the elephant, they think the elephant is ropey or, or solid, depending about what part of the elephant they touch. And it is a a little bit of a parlor game in saying, well, this is what caused it. It's misogyny. It's video games. It's bad parenting. It's drug abuse. Mm-hmm. And it gives you all these explanations by showing the failure of any one of them to explain. And this movie doesn't do that. It's very much soaking in the situation. And yeah. I think putting a lot on the audience to try and make our 
own meaning of it. And there's also something else that it does that is very, very strange. This may be the most starkly beautiful mass shooting movie made. It's yeah. filmed in black and white, which was a very good decision on his part. He said it was so that the blood would not viscerally show up. It would in the in kind of in an eerily similar way that the blood in Psycho, and by being in black and white, mm -hmm. does not have this kind of impact of being exploitative, because yeah. this is a tragedy that happened not just about very uh, relatively recently in the country's history. Yeah. And but some of this imagery is straight up beautiful. That's the thing about all of his movies. I would say is that the cinematography is pretty great. Mm -hmm. um, and here, but it's an interesting sure. choice to make that. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, like we also jump ahead. Like the like the one thing that didn't sit well with me on uh, second viewing was just you get really invested and involved with what's taking place in the immediate moment of the shooting. And then suddenly we jump way forward in time with the guy and like him visiting his mom and like, oh, we're all, we're all of a sudden away from all, you know, what's taking place in the present and, in, in, or, you know, in, in the moment of the shooting. And we sort of like, it's a little jarring, I think, mm -hmm. just to make that choice. Um, I can see why he does that, especially when you look at a lot of his films, he tends to do that just like immediately take you out of the intensity and get maybe provide you a room to some room to breathe but also he meets up with his mom and you get a sense that he's really depressed and then eventually you find out that he took his own life that's the case with a lot of these survivors like at least about four or five of them i guess they couldn't handle the trauma of what they experienced and they wound up taking their own lives so he's kind of capturing that the aftermath no. in addition to the actual visceral impact of what's taking place yeah, in the, the moment the aftermath leads to one of the reasons I would recommend people see the movie in that it creates one of the best pure cinema moments of a breakdown because he's he's driving out in the country and in an inspired move, uh, Villeneuve shows him the car traveling from a god's eye view upside down. Oh, and yeah. as a, and it's a wintertime setting, and as and he's passing by a coastline which has ice that's broken up in on the water. And as the camera slowly scrolls, you see the um, water line was first coated with ice, but then oh, it gets broken yeah. up more and more and more. <laughs> so the image resolves from just being the traveler mm -hmm. to just literally shapes that are fracturing more and more and more. Just like a absolute perfect symbolism yep. of this guy's breakdown. I love that shit. I know some people thought, like, even something like the ice storm, every time, like, somebody's breaking ice, it's, like, an obvious image, but I, I don't know. There's just something, every now and then, even if it's an obvious image, if it's a beautiful, striking image that stays with you, it doesn't matter if, like, it's an obvious metaphor. Mm -hmm. But I think in that case, it really works well. And he does that a few times, even throughout the high school, he, you know, has the camera tilted at a very interesting angle, and then, yes. you know, it spins around or does other, it does very interesting things. As an example of cinematography, is is very... Very, very striking. Uh, it concludes over even on the last scene, which is a look down one of the hallways where these people have been mm. um, shot down. And it is also depicted upside down and at ceiling level. So on the, as it moves forward along this hallway, you get these passes from the, the horizontal white lights yeah. of, the, of the overhead, but now underhead lights. 
and the effect is like, hmm, looking like a existential runway. <laughs> yeah. Just some sort of some sense of the inexorable movement of why of how events happen just gets keenly felt here. It's also notable about the description of the, the women's perspective versus the guy's perspective. Because here it's literally split down the middle of what yeah. does the guy do? I think it's fifty. And what does and what does the woman do? And right. this is something which I think it's going to be interesting to keep in mind for his films about how men and women react differently to um, a situation that they're both going through. And, and that's, the, yeah, and the actor that plays the shooter in uh, Polytechnique would later go on to star in his next film. That's right. Yeah, and that's definitely on the mind of his uh, next film on Sandy's in 2010. <laughs> This is a story about a sister and a brother. Um, they're twins, and they find an unusual request in their mother's will. The request is that they deliver a letter to the father that they never knew, and then they deliver another letter to a brother that they didn't even know they had in the first place. And this leads them to look back through their mother's past in a Middle Eastern country that, where the religious and the political strife has literally turned people against themselves. Well, finally we got to uh, a film I was able to find and see. Um, oh. Did it win Best so uh, Foreign Language Film? It was or? nominated. Okay. I, I don't think it actually won the award, mm. but I do think it's it's one of his best. I, I think it is his most disciplined film in, in, in that it tells its story directly. And it's very powerful from the opening scene where you see uh, a little boy uh, getting his head shaved. It clearly seems to be some kind of war zone, but we don't really see the context of this. But we do see the expression on this boy's face, which even out of context is like an accusation directly to the camera. Oh, yeah. So and what, true. This, yeah, what yeah. this film does that, that I, I think is, is special is that it looks at uh, the victims of war that are not the obvious victims. It takes these uh, mm. idea, the ideas of a war film that, that we've seen many times and takes it a few steps out and, like, who else is affected and why. Yeah, it, 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 it's, like, you know, not necessarily focused on the macro level, but he goes deep dive into the micro level of things. And I think, like, I initially struggled with this film just because I got the sense that, I mean, he is a French-Canadian director, and he even himself said that, like, I know nothing about the Middle East. And I felt like it kind of showed. It was, you know... Okay. Uh, you know, mm. and, like, maybe to some degree, 
you know, this isn't really a meant to be a movie about the political strife or war in the traditional sense, but more about just family. He is very it's careful not to uh, not to mention the actual conflict that's, that's going on. We which can is a we great can move, we, by but the way. we can infer what that conflict is. It seems to be the uh, Lebanese uh, civil war in the seventies right. between uh, the, the Muslims and the Christians, but it doesn't say that outright. We kind of sure. have to infer that it was a brilliant move, in my opinion, because. By not making it Lebanon, say, or Palestine, or what have you, it removes these kind of direct political connections that lead people to go to their ideological corners and say, yeah, no, yeah, no, yeah. no, I know detail A, B, and C that says I'm right and you're wrong, mm-hmm. or vice versa. But if you don't have the country, then you take it on externally on the religious terms, on the cultural terms, and internally on the family terms. Yeah, one the of the family things, terms work so well here. One of the things that I think is the movie is, is a theme that the movie explores to great, great effect is to show how a sense of how history and the cultures are so are not at all as distant as we may think. In fact, they're in on themselves. They're in the sense that we are affected by the actions of others in a more intimate way than we could ever imagine. And this is done visually really brilliantly because while Polytechnique had all these narrow hallways and these big expanded vistas, Hilt Verneuve does really well at showing that there's the lack of a horizon. So often when a car is driving off in the distance, they go to a hill, and that hill takes up the whole frame. So many times when someone, say, emerges from a tunnel or leaves a building, the thing they see is just more earth, more rock, or when they get to a city, it's so huge. You see, you get a whole impression of the hundreds of different buildings taking it, and it makes... I think one of the finest examples of outdoor claustrophobia that film has ever really depicted. <laughs> well, because our, the, the main characters, or, or the daughter in, in particular, is heading into this foreign en- environment, even though it's of her heritage, it's where her mother is from, uh, the, the, the film is really great at uh, expressing that kind of... Uh, uh, a foreignness of being in a place where you don't really know know the rules. There's a, a wonderful scene where she thinks she's uh, making some connections with this uh, with this extended family, and then once a secret uh, is revealed, after they've been so friendly and so welcoming, they they basically say, "You're no longer welcome here." Mm-hmm. Yeah. And as she goes and tries to look through her mother's past. Uh, the movie does this splitting of time that you had yeah, mentioned, yeah. Uh, Jim, like in that she would visit a location and the film would cut to like show the mother in this in that location, but right. obviously decades decades earlier, mm-hmm. and it evokes that great phrase of uh, William Faulkner's that says the past is no uh, the past isn't uh, gone it's not even past right <laughs> and. <laughs> Through political events, obviously that region has been like just a cauldron yeah, of yeah. strife and and um, conflict that's gone through generations and generations and generations. 
family against family and neighbor against neighbor for so long. And I think the movie is really valuable at giving us this, fe- uh, giving us this feeling, this feeling that this conflict is so ongoing and it's also so claustrophobic because that feeling of brother against brother just really gets felt and it, it takes it to a level where you feel how humanity is just turning on itself. You feel the problem, the, like a fundamental part of how, how people turn in on themselves when that's, not, yeah. when that's not necessary. The way other people hurt each other through their own reasons or their own ignorance or their own, their own stresses that happen in their own life. It, 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 yeah, it yeah, does yeah, this totally. in both large ways, but maybe just as interestingly in small ways too, because through the mother's story, we're seeing how how war and and conflict leads to that. But then when you see how the twins react to the will to their mother, it uh, it takes it down to this uh, personal level because they have, especially the son, has this very complicated relationship with her mother with, with their mother they think you know it's, their mother hasn't told them about uh her past so they kind of think she might be crazy they think there's something wrong with her they there's some uh rejection on their part of course the daughter is much more interested in in pursuing this will and this exploration but i think it's so it's it's so interesting especially if we are go- if we would wonder uh if a family would be so willing to go on this kind of adventure based based on a will that the son takes such a harsh negative uh, response to it and refuses to have anything to do with it. Yeah, yeah. there's this interesting show. I, I haven't seen a lot of episodes of it, but it's like an Ancestry.com kind of a thing where like celebrities go back and check out their parents or their grandparents or their great grandparents' heritage, and they learn about their own personal narrative through the lives of their relatives. And that, that to me, was kind of like an interesting exploration of like, oh my God, I found out that, you know, I have, uh, you know, this this type of uh, heritage. And, you know, kind of, it's really interesting to see that. But hmm. to me, the life experiences of your parents will affect you in some capacity and possibly throughout your entire life and through your adulthood. Like the trauma that your parents have went through, maybe it's not outspoken or talked about or externalized, but it's still there. It's still going to be a part of you because you're a part of them. And I think that's kind of an interesting theme to explore here. Sort of like also with, you know, thinking about the external environment and the politics affecting the internal environment and the personal side of things Mm -hmm. and how we all relate to one another and yeah the 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 final reveal is is i mean i've seen this kind of quoted in other reviews just a a greek tragedy (laughs) is kind of you know like one particular greek tragedy yes Yes, of course (laughs) of course and yeah i mean like some people sort of criticize it's kind of like a m night Shyamalan kind of an ending of a twist like oh you know like whoa you didn't see that coming did you that Mm -hmm. kind of a thing I will say that, like, the most interesting part of how things develop in that way is also something that shows up with um, this guy's other films, especially some films we'll be talking about in in the distant future, specifically because I think there's a conflict between all these emotions and and traumas that the Mm -hmm. characters go through and just 
the inadequacy of how you articulate this through creation, through words. Like one of the interesting things about the mother's will is that she says, if you have to give these letters, you have to give these letters. And if you don't, I don't want to be buried where in a way I'm identified. I had made a promise and until that promise is fulfilled, then I can get a gravestone and I can get a name. So what is that saying about like how people choose to mark themselves? Whether yeah. his, especially in a historical context, because this film is very also very cool at showing just like the sweep of history yeah. and how people matter or don't in in that sweep. Like, very momentous things happen in this fictionalized country. Mm -hmm. And in a way, the mother is kind of a legendary figure among people. Stuff which actually has things happen to her, both good and bad. Yeah, Right, because she's uh, known uh, at one point when she's imprisoned as the woman who sings. That's right. And uh, so, and right. as mm -hmm. I'm sorry, just to add, and as Prisoner 72 and as Whore 72, those each different people have these different identifiers. Yes. Right. And so she in, in her in her past story we see her agency, we see her surviving uh her sheer will to uh be in a situation to to get out of this situation, but we don't see that as she's an older woman who is dying. So when you talk about kind of the the will and some of the more eccentric yeah. uh, elements of it, that seems to be within this character. Definitely. And the writing yeah, is sure. the, her main way she expresses herself in her in her older form that is said in the present day. There's a very there's a point in scene near the end where she's talking to her advocate. And it's just whispered, and we don't know the specific right. yeah, there's the an, specific words. There's an interesting correlation between just like the power of the letter, and also the power and the need for communication and arrival. Just like you know, we have to have. There's like yet yeah, just that need of, for humans to relay their own legacy, and in the case of the mother here, she yeah. wants to do that through these letters. Yes, and, and it is also this is a very very interesting exploration that I think people need to be charitable about when they see the movie in the sense of looking at how religion influences. The the mothers mm -hmm. is beset upon by two different factions of religion and how she uses her own religious upbringing to try and help her and yeah, help yeah. others in the situation is really poignantly rendered. There is a very startling image of this religious iconography on the stocks of machine guns that are used to mow down everyone on a bus. Mm -hmm. oh, and yeah. you just, it it leaves an emotional mark on you to just imagine what, how this, how this stuff has been curdled to put the horrid mm -hmm. use. And, and as in so many conflicts, we, we see that the difference between life and death is what religion somebody happens to be. And in, in the case of this, uh, of a civil war in this situation, you know, you don't know what side the person shooting at you or ready to kill you is on. And if you answer correctly the religion they want you to answer, you may survive. If you don't, you'll die. Mm -hmm. It's a powerful statement. Yeah. 
Yeah, I'm, it's right. It's taking the whims of fortune that was he was already on his mind in Maelstrom, and then putting it in a religious context and in a social context and in a and in a family context here. Um, I'm and kind in, of with and in a gender context with polytechnique where it's like yes, you know, if you're a woman. Guess what? Yeah. And, and like at first, I thought he was only going to kill feminists. Like that was my memory of watching this movie. Is like, are you a feminist? And then he kills them. But no, it's just all women, in mm-hmm. general, which is just right, oh, right. Yeah. And, so, and 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 the film does have some interesting thoughts can percolate when you look at how the the female part of the twin behaves versus the male part. There's a moment early in the film which is kind of key where the where the son says. You know, you were with the mother when the accident happened that put her in a catatonic state. But I was with her when she died. And I think those two things kind of help inform that... Well, how they behave from right, and the, the two actresses playing the uh, the mother and the daughter look very much alike. So you could definitely see that uh, the film is is trying to draw a stronger connection uh, between yeah, the mother and the daughter sure. than with the son. And mm-hmm. also, just the the the, the twins' ve- contrasting reactions to the realization like he's kind of in shock while she just starts bawling her eyes out mm-hmm. and, like once he says. Mm-hmm how can one plus one equal one, you know? Mm-hmm. And like that whole thing, that the whole epiphany. Yeah, I, ha- I have to ask, remarkable. I have to ask, I, because I'm don't know what that means. I kind of don't either, okay. <laughs> but it's like, how I just can one infer, plus one equals one? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't know what that, I don't know what specifically. I no, think it relates to the big secret of family reveal at the end of the yeah. film. Oh, okay. It does, I, it does infer to that, but it's also like, how does she figure it out? Like she just starts right. crying the moment he says that, yeah. and I, I guess it's like almost like intuition, maybe. Like she just figures it out too with him. Yeah. At that moment, but yeah. it's pretty powerful. I mean, like mm-hmm. some people criticize the coincidence of like the mother suddenly, like, oh, I recognize, like the, he's there, right? You know, like how did he get here all of a sudden? You know, it's kind of a amazing cr- a crossing of the paths all of a sudden for. The, uh, the well, other, other there, brother too. There is here. yes, there there is that. Um, I want to say there's a couple parts of the movie where I'm, where I the movie makes some missteps, and I think a lot of those stem from that the director is he's a very smart guy, and he's a and there's moments there where I think he conceptualizes things too much for his own good. For example, I would just say that the the when you see what the kids are revealed, what the kids discover, and you realize that the mother put them up to this, it kind of if you really think about it, it kind of makes her a horrible person. That is if if you think about the implications, first off, you should have never told them. Secondly, if you were going to give them the letter, you just tell them, give them the letter. Thirdly, if you're going to, t- if you're going to, if you're going to tell them, have the decency to tell them directly. Look, there is a reason that there is tension in this family, and I, I don't think that the. Uh, the film is necessarily saying that she's being particularly fair to her children, right. but that this is a truth that is within her that on her deathbed 
has to has to come out. Yeah. And we could certainly and and, and by the I way, agree this isn't this isn't. Yeah. I, I want to remember this particular discussion when we get to our arrival discussion because right. I think we're going to uh, go back to some of the same issues. Definitely, and I I I, I see where you're I see where you're going with this. And um, uh, there are no and, issues with and, arrival. And, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> and and uh, four or five hours from now, you guys listening will know this as well. <laughs> uh, yes, but. The I will say that by presenting these these details in this way and having the children set out to make this discovery, it's short on two levels. First off, they find these details and just talk to exactly the right people at exactly the right time. It's kind of like how the family guy had a wonderful joke about the end of um, the Shawshank Redemption where if you just said one syllable wrong – they would have never found that place. <laughs> and that was really, really stupid to not give a fallback position. But that happens multiple times in this movie for me, where if you just did not have this professor go out and point out that this looks from this location at this moment, then they would have not discovered it. Then so there would be no horrible. movie. Well, that's right. But the <laughs> I mean, maybe it's manipulative. And, you know, but. Right. And think about that, that the mother is... And think about that, that the mother is manipulating... What does that mean that she's manipulating? It's one thing to reveal this horrible secret, mm-hmm. but it's another to send the children on this unknowable mission to make this. And this gives, this is an unfortunate cast to her motivation. It reminds me of like how Citizen Kane is such a remarkable movie because Kane says Rosebud and people are curious and they, they make the exploration themselves. Yeah. But imagine if Citizen Kane had a nice big shiny will where Charles Foster Kane said, it was about Rosebud all the time. Now you find out. Wouldn't you kind of think Kane is kind of even more of an asshole than he already was? And but that's not but the you position. You'd still want to find out. You might still, but you would not want to. You wouldn't. But you might not want to do it for his sake to find out more about him in the way yeah. that you do in the movie as it stands. And unfortunately, and, it, and considering what the mother goes through, it's a really unfortunate cast to it. And I'd also want to mention that Villeneuve has hints of it because he has such a love of mathematics. Which is actually also showed up in Polytechnique, where where, oh, someone, yeah. where in a moment that's a little on the nose, a professor is talking using mathematics to show the randomness of the universe right when the gunman comes in and starts mm. threatening people. <laughs> and you're like, yeah, okay. And that happens a couple times, unfortunately, in this movie, too, where they mathematics say, well, this person found an equation and he found that yeah. God exists. And well, even the enemy, the Jake Gyllenhaal professor is like, this is a pattern that repeats itself. Exactly, and right? I don't, I don't Which is mind, ironic. I don't now mind we're that. talking. Now we've already talked about three movies where a certain pattern has repeated has repeated mm. itself. But ultimately, I just want to uh, finish at least my part on this film with by saying, the ultimate thing where I just go, oh, it was so close, and is something that you guys listening in can help fix yourself because, as Brad so eloquently put it, that first image is so striking, even if you know nothing about what happens in the movie. Yeah. Because this child, as it's getting... It could be a Radiohead video for, you know... Yeah, because it has a majestic Radiohead tune playing that's so good at putting this sense of epic melancholy as Radiohead is so good at doing. And as this kid is being shaved, he has this look, this look of judgment and Mm -hmm. defiance and anger and loss... And he's giving us this accusation, as Brad, as you so aptly put it, right in the camera. 
And it's striking when you first know about it. And I would recommend that when you guys at home see it, if you haven't already, when you get to the end of the movie and you immediately go back and watch that first scene again, it provides the greatest punctuation mark. Yeah. Because now you know what has driven that child to feel that way. For his first American film, Villeneuve goes and tackles a genre concept in a very interesting way, I feel anyway, in his film, Prisoners, in 2013. Um, It stars uh, uh, Hugh Jackman as uh, Keller Dover, who is a man who is dedicated to his family, to his carpentry job, and to his values of, of masculinity, of being a good provider. And he finds all of this gets tested when his child is abducted and then he feels the police are not doing enough to pursue a likely suspect leading him to put matters out into his own hands now as i'm describing it sort of sounds a little bit like a charles bronson story Mm. but in instead this becomes one of my favorite types of movies which is a movie that transcends the genre trappings, to be about so much more than just children in peril. Now, that's interesting that to you it, it transcended it. To me, it, it felt a little more like an awkward meshing of genres because it, it's trying to do two very different things. It's, on the one hand, wanting to be a uh, mystery thriller um, you know, murder mystery, kidnapping mystery mm-hmm. in the uh, in in the mode of seven, where we're being put in the place of trying to to solve a crime, and really being in thriller mode. On the other hand, because we are dealing so intimately with a uh, with a father who is. Uh, whose child is missing, who doesn't know if his child is dead or alive, there is a a level of intense drama that, you know, frankly, Hugh Jackman is uh, able to deliver in what I think may, might be a bit of a one note, but that note is a very powerful one yes. in, in, his, in his performance. Now, as the we'll get into kind of where the the film goes, but but I just found that tonally, uh, Villeneuve wasn't quite able to balance these two things in the, in the way that say Clint Eastwood was able to do with Mystic River. Okay. Hmm. hmm. I, I <laughs> I'm in agreement with Brad in terms of like the overall. I was hoping, like, rewatching this would maybe bump it up a little bit, but it actually went down even further as to being my least favorite of his movies. Okay. Um, and I think it is mainly because it's stuck in that genre trappings, like you mentioned, and also it just feels like, like you said, very Fincher-esque. And then we get to the big reveal again, and I think, you know, once once we get, once we get involved with, um, well, Paul Dano's aunt, I guess, um, 
that kind of stuff just doesn't work for me as as effectively. And I kind of go, this could have gone somewhere more interesting than where it went, in my opinion. Um, and I just think uh, both Paul Dano and Jake Gyllenhaal give these really affected, kind of over the top performances. And I mean, like I've I've had I've had these issues with Paul Dano even in like There Will Be Blood, but just like his he's just a little t- he tries so hard to act. <laughs> to me, and I, I, th- I like even Jake Gyllenhaal in this. He does this blinking thing throughout the movie <laughs> that really got got on my nerves to where I'm just kind of like, no. And I, I, as much as I like him as an actor and grown to, I mean, especially after Nightcrawler, he's one of my favorites now. But in this, it just, I don't know. There's, there's just something off. Other than Hugh Jackman's, and I, I love Maria Bello, but she's completely wasted. She's just like, you know, confined to a bed, mm. taking sleeping pills. Well, in Nightcrawler, though, he had these really wide, unblinking eyes. Uh, so I believe yeah. there might be. Is there a blink to quality <laughs> ratio going on yes, when it comes to be. evaluating uh, Gyllenhaal? Gyllenhaal's character is, I think, he's a little abstracted. There yeah. is a sense that, like, so now in relation to the movie we just talked about, now the religious stuff seems to come across a little more resonant on there. Mm. Uh, even when I first saw the movie, I noticed that the placement of, of crosses was very, very prominent. Um, and But it's notable upon, like, how... Joan Hall's character is called Detective Loki, which is a Norse god of mischief. Ah, uh, yes. And at some points you can see that he has certain tattoos on his hands that are like Masonic symbols. And on his neck. Yes. Yeah. And so I, the film is doing something in a kind of maybe an intellectual, maybe a little too metaphoric way for some people yeah. to show that Jackman is a person who's dedicated toward this religion. He be- truly believes, and it comes across very well, that he believes in faith, in the sense of right, of right and that's, wrong that's and justice. That's what opens the film as he's hunting. He yeah. recites a prayer. And I think the film does a really interesting contrast on Loki's, de- on, his detective, on his detective work. There's two kinds of ways of like trying to solve problems. Uh, one of which is called induction and others called deduction. Sure. And induction comes from within. You have these certain principles and you try to expose these principles to guide you. Yeah. And deduction is you look at the environment and you try to make the connections totally externally and see what co- where the connections lead you, regardless of what, what you may personally think. And Jackman is such a great emo- – to me, he's a very great emotional wellspring of the induction idea. Prisoners shows a person who has done everything, quote-unquote, right in especially American society about what a man's man should do. He builds things with his own hands. He goes hunting. He teaches his son how to hunt and how to use firearms. And he even gives a very poignant speech in the beginning about how, in the end, it's going to be entirely up to you. These are these principles that, that he's found valuable. And this is something that that uh, in the United States, the live free or die motto has, has made just a template that, you know, the can-do spirit, the epitome oh, yeah. of a can-do spirit. Jackman embodies that. Right. Yeah. But and, see, mm-hmm. I, I, for me, like, the, the, both that and the religious element are being hit on our, uh, we're being hit on our heads with like a sledgehammer with these things because what, what happens is, of course, 
Jackman uh, believes he knows who the killer is, believes that the police are in, being ineffective, and that he needs to take the law into his own hands and kidnaps Dano and, and proceeds to torture him. And again, we, we Jackman is so good at showing his own internal suffering yeah. uh, based on the kidnapping. And his but, crisis but of what, faith, but, too. Well, I don't see the crisis of faith. I, oh, that, that okay. to me, is not happening. I think that, uh, I, and I was looking for some kind of change, and it struck me that the, the Jackman character experienced no growth throughout... There's no uh, arc throughout, No arc. Yeah. And, and that the idea that he is kind of this simplistic avatar of religion and tradition is a little too trite to turn him into basically one of the villains of the piece because we realize as an audience that his vigilantism is completely and utterly destructive and out of control so so the deck is is stacked we don't get to kind of see uh this character's journey hmm that's a really interesting uh perspective on it um i think i'm with you in the sense that he doesn't have an arc in the sense that his character has a fundamental realization internally to change his perspective. Yeah. I think his perspective does change, but it's kind of a change that is, let's just say, forced upon him. However, I would point out that like at about the halfway point, there is a really amazing sequence where he he puts Dano in this box and he sp- tries to torture him with scalding water. And you just have in this just religious kind of take of Edgar Allan Poe's cask of Amontillado. Yeah. You just hear the scream comes from a pipe, just the output of what he's built, and you see the steam just come in. Like, just this great evocation of just the horror of it just coming in on, like, the most elemental form. And right after that, soon after that, you see him praying, and he's very desperate, and he's saying, our father, and he's, I believe he's even saying it over and over, mm-hmm. but he's halting at it. He's 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 pausing it. He is he is rubbing against those values that he thought were rock solid, yeah. and and fighting against it to just get to the other side, which is I think what Loki's side is. Loki's side is that you get some things out of Masonic things. You get some things out of the Nor out of Norse stuff. You get some sort of fragments, and you work and you work off with these. He's a tonal opposite, and. And to the extent that I do, I do agree with you, Jim, that his his performance is a little mannered on that score. A little much. But I think this is a case where I do buy the intellectual thing about it, partly mm-hmm. because this is a Charles Bronson, Chuck Norris kind of dirty direct-to-video exploitation story. Like, Nicolas Cage could do five of these kind of films, like, oh, I'll get my son. You know, this is the kind, this is the kind of... And this is a story where I'm seeing two different ways of thinking and believing in diametric conflict but for the same goal i'm like whoa that's a case where his where the nerves like thought process is just the enhancement but, really worked for me but but they seem to be very tied to genre 
And like you, you know, you mentioned Bronson. You know, you have Jackman in full vigilante mode. You have him at no point does he question. Uh, I mean, he's praying over it, but he doesn't hesitate. He doesn't stop at any point uh, of his own volition. And I think he feels remorse. Um, there's parts where he shows mercy, more yeah. mercy to Paul, to mm-hmm. Paul Dano. And who, that's why he begins drinking heavily too. And yes, kind of like, that's right. Right. He his 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 functionality as a which, by the way, also ties into Maelstrom, which has an, a, a traumatic event and someone goes a downward spiral. I felt mm. for his downward spiral. While I agree with you, Brad, that I don't think he changes his fundamental character, but he does show that the things that he was relying on have been are pulled away from him, and he is he is yeah. losing functionality as a as a as a working human being mm-hmm. as a, as a result. And and I mean, I think that has something interesting to say about people and what they what they believe and what happens and what do they turn to when those beliefs are pulled or frayed apart. Well, he becomes a prisoner of his own ideology, essentially. Well, that's then, exactly like that's why it's such a great title too, yeah. because it is, is about it? it is about what is the thing that's imprisoning them. This is also a movie that I think visually is suffused with grief. Oh yeah, this yeah. is a, like what you compare Jim with Seven is very apt because I think what makes Seven resonate even today is was so good at showing a a dirty. Dark, yeah, dreadful rain. atmosphere. Exactly, yeah. such an environment where it feels very oppressive, and I think that's some right. people are turned off by it. Like I'm not a turned off by it, but it's also like it's two and a half hours long. <laughs> it's not one I want to like revisit regularly and sort of dissect because I feel like how we're mentioning like all the themes are pretty much spelled out for you. I think this is one of those films that kind of does that. Mm, but, but for me, see. I think this goes in a, gives an extra register to what seven is because mm. seven is sort of an object lesson on oppression and yeah, yeah. just giving like a, this the, it has a purity about it. This is a little more ragged, and I think, but the darkness comes from the grief and desolation that mm-hmm. characters after characters feel. How many people are lo- is Detective Loki are invalid? They're all broken in some way. Right. They're all left wanting in some way. And the way Maria Bello reacts to things is is also she also descends, but her spiral moves in a totally different circle as does Terrence Howard and Viola Davis's yeah. fr- uh, friends whose child is also and it also gets into a little, a, a little bit of the same kind of crisis that High and Low did when one of the uh-huh. children is rescued, but the other isn't, and you're left. Why is why is this child saved, but mine, but mine is not? Mm. And at the end, this is a, a, a spoiler thing, so um, I advise you guys listening to just jump in ahead, like about uh, uh, two or three minutes, when Jackman suspects. Um, Dano's aunt, his his uh, obsession to use any means to take care of the crime himself leads him to bring duct tape and um, and rope to and go gun. and do yep. something very an equally horrible end to Melissa to Melissa Leo's character. Right. And but then it turns out she was responsible. But what gets her responsible? The death of her own child. It's not just that it's prisoners. 
But these are people of prisoners of their own grief and pain mm. in a way that it the atmosphere honors, I think, this level of, of how people have been diminished by the trauma that hit their their lives in a way that Seven's not necessarily trying to do. Well, so, and that's so, something that mm-hmm. I feel... I'm sorry, Brad, I just want to finish by saying... I feel that in every part of the atmosphere, from the trees to the rain to the, the wind to people hidden by snow or water yeah, on windshields, yeah. I feel that in the the, the texture of them. Well, well, Seven is such a pure genre piece. Probably, in my opinion, one of the greatest uh, in in all film. I, I agree on that. But but here. I think we you hit on another what for me was a problem was the Melissa Leo reveal mm-hmm. because I, I okay. found her performance to be overly broad, yes. silly uh, even okay, and just the idea, just the reveal of her as as the kidnapper as the villain to be very random. And the and yeah, she has her explanation yeah, and, and so whatever. And there, there's all this so. business with 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 these uh, with, with these drawings of mazes and 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 whatnot. And the but 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 in and the snakes. But but in the end, they just are like, okay, it's her. And I'm like, well, damn, I just, you know, wasted my time, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Ouch. Yeah. No. Wow. Yeah, I see that though. I see what you mean. The labyrinth is, and especially the snakes, is kind of just uh, Villeneuve to me. He goes just a little far in in like over intellectualizing it, making it more like sometimes Christopher Nolan is accused of that by just making some convoluted explanation where it's just like, I just want to see how Batman gets a, back. A little in this more, movie, you know? a little more religious imagery, maybe. Yeah, exactly. Sure, right. Yeah. Oh yeah, and this the this, the the trunk full of snakes mm-hmm. that happens is a little. It's never really explained except to just go, religion, folks. Mm. And so, and I do... Does anybody take a bite of an apple at any point? (laughs) And so I do want to... I do also agree with you that there's an issue... There could be an issue with Melissa Leo's character because she's not properly set up enough as someone who's so ridden with grief that, that that the reveal is does not come across as earned. Akin to, like, say, an Agatha Christie mystery when someone from a totally different Agatha Christie mystery goes up to admit to be the killer. You're like, well, that's not satisfying at all. It's, and, I, and, yeah. and to it's the extent that, and I, and, I, and, I, and I do also agree, Brad, that to the extent that it's a genre piece, it should honor the genre piece. Don't give us necessarily labyrinths that lead nowhere and characters that we would never have honestly guessed. But I can just say that on my impression, I was, we, I, I felt so aware of feeling for Jackman and feeling for the motivations for why he was doing it and also totally understanding how wrong and horrible and what horrible thing he was going to do. So to have the tables turned on him and for the exact same reason just really crystallized how this is so about how so many of the characters are prisoners of their own grief and, and it's patterns so, and history yes, repeats itself. it's it's so i found it so wonderfully self-reflecting mm. like how it the how pain and trauma just bounce in from generation to generation just like in a way that those that really the previous movie we talked about was doing um in a, po- a social and political way but this is doing in a genre way and uh, and and in a way that I was totally not expecting to do, and it culminates in 
that ending, which I think is one of the greatest endings of all time, it's a whistle that Jackman gave to his kid. Mm -hmm. Another example of like passing a signal from one generation to another, and most importantly, it's so faint. The first couple times, I'm sure it was playing before, but through the wind mm -hmm. or whatever, that I didn't hear it. So to me, it made this really profound moment about grace and salvation. Yeah. Uh, no, no fooling. I thought like, yes, he can be, because he is praying in, in, in his trapped environment. Hugh Jackman is praying for his salvation. And to the extent you might think he might get his salvation, but it's so faint. It was such by the slimmest of margins that mm -hmm. this person was found. And I love that a film that has such a genre basis is able to give us this level of both deep feeling, real explorations on like the values people have and the sense of like this inevitable sense of transiness about right. like us getting sense of justice in the world. And to get all that out of what is an action movie premise, a, 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 a kid in peril movie you might expect mm -hmm. on, a, on a, a basic cable network, I think that's wonderful to experience on it. So, and so I think his next movie is wonderful to experience because uh, if Lynch and Cronenberg were their own genres, maybe uh, it would be it, Enemy would fall in line with with something along those lines. I right, think. right. That his next right his next film, Enemy, in two thousand fourteen. It's a film that's based off uh, author Jose Saramago's 2000 book, The Double, and Enemy is about a college professor who rents a movie and notices an extra in the film that looks very much like him. He becomes obsessed with finding out more about this actor, and the more he finds out about the actor's life, the blurrier the lines come between the two people. Oh, and there's spiders. Lots of spiders. Yeah, in yeah. different forms. And it also stars the architecture of Toronto. Yes. In, in that this film just lovingly gives us strange building after strange building uh, of uh, that, that the overall effect uh, reminds us of another uh, Canadian director, uh, David Cronenberg. Indeed. Very much so. I want to say that certain films just get a response in a very can, in a very particular way that you can just find really rewarding and I just want to say for those listening that if you like myself are a fan of David Cronenberg especially early David Cronenberg you're going to adore the visual look on this film I think I in do. a lot of in a way I would almost say that he's tributing Cronenberg because there's so much of it feels like what shivers or scanners yeah, look it's like. Not a, it's not an accident. Uh, the, the color has been drained into a shade of burnt orange. And, and, and harsh yeah. yellow, too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and the uh, 
the the effect is that some of the most haunting parts of the film are are really are scenes with no characters in them whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Overlooking the landscape, showing these very odd corridors, these strange passageways, and these even the surveillance cameras are these boxy models that look like they were shipped from a time machine in 1983. <laughs> yeah, every now and then a movie comes out and like, um, I can 100% understand if somebody doesn't like it. And yet I feel like, I, I wish I could have made something like this. Um, and it's all it came out around the time I saw Take This Waltz, which also takes place in Toronto. And that's a movie that made me want to check out because it looks so sunny, it looks so friendly and vibrant and like a, a wonderful place to live. That's like Sarah Polly's interpretation of her, you know, uh, Canadian heritage, I guess. And then... You get this movie where it's like colorless or just like this weird, yeah, like you mentioned, burnt orangey kind of uh, flavor to it. I think for however you want to take it, it's maybe the Canadian version of the third man (laughs) taking a city and (laughs) making it a very nightmarish world. Yeah, it's, and you know, we, we talked a lot about Cronenberg. I also sent some Polanski in here as well. Uh, Just this, this, this paranoia about identity and... You know, I think, again, a lot of it is kind of spelled out in very overt ways that usually irk me. Like, I hate the scenes in movies with professors saying, okay, now let me tell you about the full, <laughs> this existential philosophy thing. And here's what, you know, and see, it's kind of spelling out what the movie is about in that moment. Um, but for some reason, mm-hmm. it, everything about it appeals to me, and, and including just like this Kafka uh, sort of take on infidelity and what it means to be... I mean, I think that's what both... Like, this was a kind of a, a pet project between Gyllenhaal and Villeneuve after they did Prisoners together, and they wanted to work together again, and they sort of... This is like, you know, how um, the Coens, when they were struggling with Miller's Crossing, they just went out and did Barton Fink. <laughs> this is like their pure id together. Mm. A, a pure collaboration... Um, I think maybe they were struggling with their masculinity and identity and just fidelity in general. Yes, like the, yes. What I, does it all mean? And how do we stay true and all that? And this is sort of came out in this. Yes, that's right. It, I, that's such a cool point because it does share, the movie shares Barton Fink's disregard for th- how things really happen. <laughs> yeah, 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 for sure. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately for me, this uh, film kind of goes into... Uh, a stylistic thing that tends to bother me, which is when a film is all allegory. Yeah, and I we'll can we'll, see we'll that. talk later about the nature of that allegory. But I, I really think that if you're going to do that, you need to have a characters, a narrative, a story that works without the allegory Mm. and then you add the allegory onto it so i think this movie has some of the same issues as aronofsky's mother has uh although that one's much more bombastic uh it it still completely relies on allegory but 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 an example that i'd like to use is usually not a director i mention uh charitably but this i think is one of his better films is lars von trier's melancholia which uh, his film is an allegory for a depression. But if it weren't, if we were just watching the film without the allegory, I still find myself uh, interested and involved 
on a narrative level. And here, unfortunately, I, I couldn't relate to anything going on character-wise or story-wise. Mm-hmm. And, you know, again, you, you, you're right. The allegory does present itself, and it mm-hmm. makes it more interesting. But I can't full, really embrace this movie based on allegory alone. Yeah, it lacks mm-hmm. humanity in that the characters aren't fully human at all. Like, they're, they're, I don't know. Right, like, yeah, especially I the mean, ones who are part spider, yeah. Yeah, well, <laughs> but it's just like, they, they, yeah, I mean... The characterization isn't its forte, and in, 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 in terms of like, even the two Jakes um, in this movie, uh, even the women, like they're not like fully developed, fully fleshed out to where you can't connect with them on like any sort of. Uh, emotional level, and that's that can be a problem. Right. And if Hall's character is having trouble kind of recognizing the depth of the women in his, in his life, then it makes sense for us not to know them as well. True. But yeah. then, I, then I think we need to know Jake a little better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Either one. Yeah. <laughs> or maybe there's just one. Maybe. Mm. Mm. Do you want... <laughs> is that your impression? Well, this is one of those puzzle movies. Like, I, I'm not the biggest Donnie Darko fan in the world, but I've gone back to it a few times. Um, because I'm like, it's a puzzle that I'm still intrigued by, mm-hmm. even if it's not coming together as a satisfying whole. Mm-hmm. Uh, for me, this one does. And it's hard to like pinpoint exactly why, and maybe it's like it speaks to me in some subconscious level, like David Lynch movies can do, where I'm like, I don't know exactly what it's about, but it's still resonating with me. Mm-hmm. Um, well, to me, it's like a puzzle, but unfortunately, it's the kind of puzzle, like the the, the visual illusion where it's a three-pronged thing, but if you look at the back of it, it's clearly two prongs. Okay. <laughs> and you're meant, I think, a lot of the movie is trying to put you in that weird space, like, how could it be one and not the other? How could it be? Is it this Hall or that Hall? And like you said, yeah. maybe there's two, maybe there's one. Um, the movie comes across to me like an a overheated and overweirded version of the double life of Veronique. Okay, okay. <laughs> which, which I, I find, love. which, okay, and I find profoundly unsatisfying because... I believe that movie leaves a lot for uh, you leaves a lot for and the charity of the viewer. The characters do inexplicable things, but you yourself are are meant to explore and think what must they be thinking, what must they be feeling. Yeah. But the movie's not helping you on that. <laughs> I don't and mind that. I don't, of, I don't mind well, filling in the blanks. Right. Right. Know? Right. And and that's that's something where uh, a lot of the blanks were just wide and vast enough for me. So I was. Just being more aware that it's like an object lesson, that it is an experiment or a, or a trick to be. Right, but that's right. that is to dismiss it because I think it is effective about giving a mood of a very weird environment and also being effective on that sense of displacement. Yeah, yeah, that's 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 displacement's a good term. Yeah, and to use and in this and film. while and while Veronique, I think entirely does this displacement in a highfalutin intellectual way where you're just meant to draw a goatee on your face mm-hmm. and then just so you can stroke and go, oh, isn't this interesting? Yeah. Here, it's meant to be weird. You're meant to be weirded out. So it seems to I know, be a I know the more, last shot a is, little more visceral. The, the last shot is sort of an, an indicator of that. That like, okay, you want to get weirded out? Check out this ending and the way this ends. And a lot of people just... The biggest thing I kept hearing was this is the ultimate WTF, what the fuck ending to a movie. Mm-hmm. And I was like... 
it kind of brings it all full circle. If you, I mean, that one of the first things we see at the beginning of the movie is a spider about to be squashed by a, you know, a, a woman, a stripper, perhaps. Mm-hmm. And what happens towards the end of the movie? Well, that spider sort of recoils, and it looks like it's about to be squashed, but it's also directly making contact with this cheater and who like also the movie's about temptation like that's right. kind of what the key represents you know and, and the the spider imagery we we are given enough uh spider imagery throughout so that the ending even though the way it's presented as a surprise isn't isn't necessarily completely out of context yeah 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 but so again the the, the spider seems yeah. to be uh, sim- a symbol of Gyllenhaal's character's uh, fear of of women, of sexuality, of love, of commitment, of anything that that could make a relationship with his, with his wife. Yeah, and, and I guess we. Uh, I'll just I, I chime that- in. I've heard that mentioned as a theory, and I don't think it's effective because if you're going to show that it's his fear, then you don't have the spider recoil. Well, the, the the spider, the spider, i.e., his wife, is recoiling because she sees in his reaction that he's about to start his uh, process over again. And so yeah, let me just, let me just put put out my two cents on this because I, I I did have a different reaction the second time I saw it and that I think I was able to get a little more uh, get a little more sense out of it because the first time I'm going through this idea of um, there are two Jakes and the movie makes no fucking sense if there are two Jakes right. none the movie actually does make sense if there's one Jake who's suffering from a split personality yep and that's, that's if point. that Jake is acting out in ways that is completely freaking out his wife, you know, so the uh, uh, the the girlfriend of the history teacher, you know, is is actually the mistress of uh, of the one mm-hmm. Jake. Yeah. And so when the spider recoils at the end, she she's seeing that her husband is going back into his old trap. Yeah. Mhm. Yeah, but then it's laid at odds by why is the spider so large then and it's it's depicting a threatening image but then in a recoil kind of way, what's that supposed to mean? I think it's just a matter that it's so it's an, just an incongruity that meant to go, "Whoa, weird." And it also doesn't help that I think a lot of the reasons it's such a WTF moment, to your point, Jim, is that there's a sequence of events that happens in the previous 10 minutes, which is inexplicable action upon inexplicable action. There's mm. an accident that no one sees the repercussions of, and right. someone's over at the, at the, at a sofa, He then uh, and then he does things that we also don't quite understand why well, he's I think doing. the accident is technically, narratively maybe, the beginning of the movie. Um, like, that's where they kind of... Because, like, we also want the scar. Nobody really, you know, notices that, but he mentions it at yeah. one point. And I think that he got the scar possibly from the accident. Um, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, it's like, except there's the a act- lot of theorizing going on with this movie, and I like that process. Like, I like treating it like, uh, you know, a, a therapy session with the movie. Yeah, and I, I generally do, too. I tell you, if I had, uh, if I had been able to... Um, care more about Jake Gyllenhaal's character 
get get into his his performance and really be become invested i i think everything else for me would have come into come into place a lot more mm-hmm. yeah i i mean and then i look i'm personally and i look at the spider imagery and i just get the impression that um that we're expected to play with these uh, Jenga pieces that are in like four dimensions mm-hmm. and you're meant to twist this <laughs> because the uh, spiders as a metaphor for femininity don't quite don't work. And to the extent that you use spiders to express femininity, i.e. for example, they pull the strings. That's not what the women do in this movie <laughs> at all. Right. So it's just very, very twisted way of just saying, I have this image that conjures up all sorts of ideas about, like, yeah. that freak people out and weird people out in specific ways. How can I use this to describe a family relationship? And, and I just see, unfortunately, when I look at the movie anyway, I see the director doing the same thing that the stripper was doing, taking a spider and just squashing it, squashing it into the story <laughs> and see, you know, maybe a couple limbs will be sticking out. Yeah. And, <laughs> and, I also and so think, I, I, it could, I think that's also his sense of humor to some, to end it on that mm. note. Yes. Yeah. It's just like a, a ridiculous, absurd image. Kind of, yeah. you know, I don't, I don't think people should take it as, Oh, this is, you know, a literal thing. It's just something that they just do as a representative of, you know, just how they both are kind of, again, prisoners in this relationship, but also prisoners of this cycle of infidelity or at least temptation or, I mean, like, and I, I think the way I empathize with, with Jake's character is not because, like, I've ever had issues with cheating, but I've, you know, had issues with maybe, like, drinking more than I should. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I sort of, like, try to put it in that lens of any temptation, anything maybe self-destructive, anything that's unhealthy that I've done, but with the knowledge of, oh, I shouldn't be doing this, and this is not good for me, but I'm doing it. So that's yeah. kind of how I yeah I think that's a really that nice I think movie. that's a really nice way of looking at it because sometimes when people when people do things that they don't want to acknowledge that yeah. that what you're do, you're like no I'm a good person I don't behave this way usually you kind of almost decide it's like no that's what what do you say when you when you've done something horrible for another person that wasn't me yeah, it, yeah, it's yeah, not yeah. that's not the real me <laughs> right. And it, here that's made uh, literal. Yeah, yeah, it's a literal exploration <laughs> yeah. of that feeling. But and the thing is, like, and I think Patrick mentioned this in his review when we talked about it was, I don't know, a lot of, like, what's the appeal of this sex club? Like, just a bunch of guys walk watching. I mean, that's not sexy. I don't like well, just well, a bunch of guys watching the stripper dance and make out mm-hmm. with, with another woman, yeah. I guess. But it's just like guys in a room, but, right? But that's... where is he in his life, though? Is his yeah. wife is you know his wife is is six months pregnant, and uh, he's probably got all these crazy fears about mm. fatherhood, about settling down, and he's like, you know, where's my freedom where's my youth where's my yeah, individuality yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and so i think the sex club which really you're right it is rendered very unpleasant is uh <laughs> like i don't want to go to the yeah. sex club well it's it's not i don't think it's rendered in an unpleasant way like it looks luscious at least as, as far as the cinematography is concerned it just the particular things that are happening are, are are unpleasant the things that these people are supposedly getting enjoyment out of right and for me, on a personal level, I kind of agree with um, his fellow um, Canadian director, Adam Egoyan, in his masterpiece, Exotica, which he was looking very much into the, the absurdity 
of stripping. Yeah, you think yeah. about it. Why are you going to get something that's stimulating that doesn't get consummated? You know? I mean, you don't go to a restaurant to have stuff stuck under <laughs> your nose and you don't eat. <laughs> that's ridiculous. Yeah, and there, so there's a I weird... Just, like, it's a weird dynamic, you yeah, know? Yeah, for sure. And, and just kind of like a... Like a contrast between just yeah. like the schoolgirl outfit and the Leonard Cohen song playing. Yeah, it's just like <laughs> right. That's not sexy. It's, <laughs> it's, it's well, it's a str- well, it's the thing that the characters need. Yeah, yeah, the yeah. Character needs, yeah, I mean, uh, for and, sure. and even the announcer in Exotica needs. Yeah, and I think very much. So. I think we, um, uh, Villeneuve is doing a placeholder by using mm-hmm. something that we the the squeamishness of our our instant instinctual reactions to spiders to just. Make us look at these rituals of going to a swanky club and, and seeing women do weird things. But no, yeah. this is straight up weird in but every context. <laughs> <laughs> and the way I like to look at this movie from a humorous standpoint is at one point in the movie, uh, one of the Jakes uh, is talking to a coworker on their on his lunch break, and the coworker is like, um, "So do you got, do you uh, uh, watch any movies?" And then the the J- Jake's character says at one point, "I don't like movies." I don't really watch them at all. And to me, it's like, well, this is your punishment for not liking movies. <laughs> all this horrible shit's going to happen to you now, dude. That's what you get. Like, like people ul- who say that to me, I just kind of go, who are you? What's? <laughs> no, that's just not right. It's not possible. Well, as, and as, we, as you see, when you had that repressed part, when you finally do see a movie, that's uh, the first yeah. thing you see. You see yourself. You see yourself. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh my god. The ultimate example of what you um, mm-hmm. uh, you um, reflect literally upon what you deny. Yeah, very <laughs> much so. So, uh, experiment on taking these concepts and and letting us wallow on it on a kind of uh, yeah depraved and strange. Strange journey. I think this is just an experiment, kind of an outlier. I don't think he's like if this became his thing. I don't. I don't think he would be very successful. So that's why he probably had to go out further and explore deeper sociological and political themes again. Yes, and and right, he explores it in a sociological way, a political yeah. way, and a genre way, as an, in an action movie context. In his next film, uh, Sicario, in two thousand fifteen. This kind of um, heart of darkness type descent into the co- uh, layers of compromises and corruption that make up the wars between um, U.S. forces and drugs gangs across the uh, U.S.-Mexican border. Mm-hmm. Oh, and there's spiders. Lots of spiders. <laughs> spiders? <laughs> oh, my God. We can't get away from those spiders. <laughs> Right, so uh, Sicario uh, shares some themes uh, with uh, Prisoners in that it's another film that is presenting what would seem at first glance to be a uh, black and white good guy versus bad guy uh, conflict. 
and asks us to look a little deeper and to say, are the people we're rooting for really doing the right thing? Are the people who we're relating to whose whose side we're on really uh, perhaps going too far? That's a really awesome comparison because – the main character goes through a similar trial. She's also yeah. a person who has these beliefs in that world, a black and white world. They're the good guys, and they they have do things mission. by the book. They have their mission, and the and the and the mission is we'll we'll take care of the drug problem one step at a time. And the movie just peels her idea, uh, her ideals, yeah. her sense of purpose, and almost by the end, her very self gets peeled away. Yeah, it sort of deconstructs that uh, notion of, you know, if we could just put ourselves on the right path, on the right mission, it'll all work out. And then at every instance, that expectation is subverted. And it's really unfortunate because it's like, it's just watching somebody be shattered consistently. And, yeah. you know, it's and it's somebody with, you know, good intent and wants to accomplish good in the world, but just simply can't. But it also, very similar, similarly to what David Mamet did with um, Spartan, is just this idea about if you care too much about how something looks or if you're playing by the rules or by the book, it's just not going to work out for you. Um, it can actually be a weakness to be that idealistic or at least think that, you know, if you're a good person, then only good things are going to result. No, sometimes you do have to get down in the dirt, and sometimes you have to uh, change yourself and tap into that heart of darkness, like you were mentioning. And I think that Emily Blunt does a really great job here of mostly internalizing her frustration. Like, her, the, the one thing she does is, like, a tick or an externalization of her sh- being shattered is the cigarette smoking, which yeah. I think is very effective here. And also, it's kind of cool to go back and see... Uh, coffin nails have never been... It's never been more <laughs> apt for coffin nails because yeah, yeah, yeah. every yeah, totally. single time she smokes a cigarette is a particular nail in the own coffin of her own... Idealism, yeah, yeah, yeah. Her, your job, exactly. <laughs> and I enjoy uh, Josh's Josh Brolin's kind of like self assuredness throughout this movie. He's kind of like, I got, we got to get shit done, and we got to do it this way. Uh, you know, he's kind of stubborn, but I think in, in potentially the right way. I mean, like that's the thing is like it's it, you think everybody's doing things the right way, but they're not. Like at right. one point, because you want to be on Del Toro's side, he actually shoots Emily Blunt at one point. And that is a shocking moment when she gets out of the tunnel. Yeah, yeah. And Del, right, well, Del Toro is also magnificent. Yes, on here. everybody. Yeah, he's the the scene stealer uh, of the film. Now, I think right. Roland is doing a. Uh, Roland starts out with that, with his kind of uh, barefoot in the meeting. Yes, you know right. he's he he doesn't do things by the book <laughs> right. kind of thing. There's a little. I think there's, I think there's a little sure. bit of of cliche going on in in some of these characterizations, but. But Del Toro brings an intensity and a a threat uh, to the film that that I think raises it on a suspense level sure. a bit each each time he's on screen. Especially since I, I I disagree a little bit about how Emily Blunt is is utilized because I don't know I, I it seemed to me that every exp- every reaction she had was. 
a visual uh, I'm concerned face. And that she had about 10 different I'm concerned faces that she kept going back to. <laughs> but I thought there was yeah. a lot of conviction in that, that concerned look, especially when she's attacked by... Um, a guy she's initially trying to seduce, right? But also, would an would an FBI agent who is set up to be a pro, one of the best in her field, really be this naive? I think the movie does really, really well on that, and partly is partly is because Blunt is so effective at bringing out that sensibility that Jim pointed out. She has this dedication in the mission. She is a person who, if she had a more robust outlook, she would be more successful. But her problem is not that her dedication. Her problem is not her effort or, or even her thought process. It's that it all serves this purpose that is wrong. And the movie points out that it is wrong because it is idealistic. And it doesn't appreciate it of just how corrupt and without meaning mm-hmm, the environment mm-hmm. turns out to be. And I think this is something that the movie and the screenplay, which was just uh, Taylor really Sheridan's by, first screenplay. That's right. Ta- Taylor Sheridan, who um, I want to say he worked with law enforcement or in, at least the environment. You would think so with his three and, screenplays so far. And he was and and he is a person who is definitely one to watch for. He wrote the magnificent Hell or High, High Water, Water and directed a remarkable film that came out this year called Wind River. Yeah, one of the year's best. Mm-hmm. And in this screenplay, I think it just does really well by making it, I think, ironclad that of Emily Blunt's dedication, but also the fact that her dedication is focused not just only in one direction, but also only goes this far. Because time and time again, her colleagues, even like jo- even Brolin, have pointed out, okay, you don't want to know this information, mm-hmm. and she doesn't. She doesn't. Yeah, I yeah. no to be to be a a good person, to be a good agent, to do good on the war on drugs. I need to only know this much, and I'm choosing to only know this much and know yeah. more than that. And that's what damns her. I found it effective that each revelation is just more and more corrupt. That I could see how you think, oh, it's it's just going to be this bad. No. It's this bad. Mm-hmm. No, it's this bad. And actually, I think, just in a way similar that I feel about Jake Gyllenhaal versus Hugh Jackman's personas, and in fact, maybe even their very method of acting in Prisoners, I think Emily Blunt and Benicio Del Toro Ooh. are these two wonderfully titanic polar opposites. Because maybe like Jeremy Jack- Renner and Amy Adams too, maybe to some degree. Oh, hey, yeah. right, right. Yeah. yeah, that's gonna be really interesting to look at when we get on arrival. But but look at how Emily Blunt, like Jackman, she's a paragon of like she has her ideals and she's rock solid dedication to those ideals. But Del Toro, I find him and his performance in Sicario, he is a layer cake of mystery. You know? Yeah, usually that you kind see, of stoicism yes. is off-putting, but in this case, it really serves his character and strengthens him. Right. First, it's also very smart to not see too much yeah, of him. Yeah, yes. He's very slowly revealed, and when he's unleashed, it's uh, even more effective because it's like the, the it's been wound up tight so yeah. that, so that yes. when we see what he's capable of, 
we're brought into a place that goes beyond kind of what the genre has been oh, definitely uh, yeah. the genre that the film has been kind of sticking to other than whatever. Yeah. And I mean, the reveal of what motivates him is super amazing mm-hmm. because along the way you see del Toro do more and more compromised things, even horribly awful things. But as audience members, you think he's it's part of an important purpose. So you begrudgingly go, okay, mm-hmm. go ahead and torture this guy because you know it's gonna he's a yeah, bad yeah, guy, yeah. and you can justify it to yourself. And I think the night terror he has on the plane when we're introduced to him is yes. a nice bit of foreshadowing. Yeah, yeah because absolutely. it's like what is with this guy? And then you sort of find out later why he is the way he is. And you I right. I looked at Benicio del Toro and Sicario the way um uh a butch casting that Sundance kid looked to the posse in, in, in their movie. Who is this guy? <laughs> I'm always wondering, who is yeah, this yeah. guy? And when it's finally revealed the depths of who it is, it does two amazing things at once to me. Because, you're going to think, no, wait, he's one of those guys? <laughs> he plays on that side? Mm-hmm. But the underlying motivation is also... My God, it takes the themes from uh, Incendies. And, and yeah, yeah. boy, does it say... This could be not be more personal, but what he does with it could also not be more personal. I sure. mean, what did you guys think on that scene where he finally gets, he meets up with a guy and his family? Right. Well, I mean, I mean that is the big, uh, yeah, the big step too far. That is the big. That's if you if, if you were in any way going to be on this guy's side, you would not be after that. Right. Hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, but are you? Are you? Do you lose his side when you see it? I actually lost him a little earlier, but oh, okay. I could see where at least he. You, if you were more in the mode of wanting to, you know, uh, do the the Hugh Jackman vigilante from Prisoners, yeah. or the Charles Bronson thing, or just the tough guy thing, yeah. that you'll follow him up to a certain extent and go, oh, badass. But then when you get to the scene you're referring to, it's like, okay, psychotic. <laughs> yeah, mm. but also enacting revenge that he feels is probably justified. I mean, yeah. that's questionable on a lot of levels. It is. But, it is. Know, and also, you know, he's, he, he becomes a threat to Emily Blunt, not just when he confronts her after she gets out of the tunnel, right? but late in the film when, she, you know, they're going to silence her, essentially. Yeah. And it's like... Yeah, you don't want that guy um, well, he, around. Well, he's a threat of her soul yeah, in a yeah, way yeah. that Anton Chigger is a threat to people's existence. That's a good point. Yeah, in No Country for Old Men, you know, almost in a metaphysical way, he appears where she's at. <laughs> you don't see him coming in, mm-hmm. no. and there's such a compelling presence in in this confrontation that happens between Emily Blunt and Benicio in her room because uh-huh. she just disassembles as a human being in that. And it's a right. titanic performance by Blunt. But Del Toro, you see the sadness in his eyes that he knows the truth and it is, and I feel that he's, it's literally painting him. And the reason he's sparing her, the reason he's giving her this option is, is a very perverted sense of mercy and regret sure. that she'll continue on. And, but Continue on with her life, but not giving her something to live for, you know, you know, so he's like takes 
a part of her that might be worse than death in some ways. Yeah, she's compromising her ethics at that point. Right. She, well, abandoning, mm-hmm. totally, yeah. ri- literally writing them off. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. So we've been talking a lot about these fasting thematics, but I do want to veer off and, and talk about the way uh, Villeneuve uh, handles uh, suspense scenes. Yes. Because so both good. in uh, Prisoners and and here there are there are these uh, set pieces that are magnificent. The, the one in, in Prisoners being uh, when uh, Jake Gyllenhaal's character uh, comes upon where Hugh Jackman has been uh, hiding Paul Dano, right? And uh, and and, ha- and searches searches around and do we will he find him? Will he not? Yes. This is an amazingly effective suspense scene. In Sicario, you have this traffic jam oh, God. at yeah. the border yeah. where we know there are uh, cars with gunmen who are looking to uh, shoot at our protagonists. And because of uh, just the, the skill level and the uniqueness kind of of the setting of the of the of the idea that none of these cars can get anywhere and move yeah you know he he just created you know and i i kind of wish his films were this all the way through sometimes (laughs) but 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 he absolutely has these sections that are that are so suspicious there's a raid in the beginning of (laughs) i think it would be relentless too to some degree if it was like that for the whole film i found it very relentless as it was i mean it's yeah it's almost like a horror movie <laughs> yeah, like the way it oh, starts with those, with those bodies too. It's like yeah. that's a horrific image, and it's yeah, like that. Everything that sort of transpires throughout this movie really gets to me after a while, and I do appreciate the choice to kind of empathize with, with this corrupt cop who has a family in uh, Mexico, and you learn about his side of things right uh, intermittently throughout and like you know his son and him you know drinking a little coffee and whiskey and stuff like yes. little touches like that add some humanity to a movie that could have just been again like another confrontation after confrontation yeah. uh, uh, enacting revenge and going after the bad guy scenario and i, I think he really successfully Pulls off one of the better films, uh, you know, and that's an important part of the that's an important part of the story to get to honor that because um, I think there's people who have made films where like there's action movies and but but action movies rarely note the bystanders who are involved when there's car yeah, chases yeah, yeah. that crash through buildings. Mm-hmm. I think uh, Kevin Smith made a lot of merriment about all the contractors on the Death Star who perish, for example, <laughs> right? And all these ordinary people that get caught in a crossfire. And I think the the screenplay does a really nice job of pointing out, as you described, Jim, he's doing this is trying to be a good father, mm-hmm. doing all these family things just going out for a day in the office but said thing in the office is being a corrupt uh, police officer yeah i think everybody's compromising their ideals and the ultimate you know horror is that someone who is very idealistic and and has ethics has to compromise too yeah yeah and by the way another feather in this movie's cap is its visual representation he has been shown to be no slouch visually up to this point. Mm-hmm. But here, with the help of legendary cinematographer Roger Deakins, it has some of the most brilliant imagery to build about, like both the themes and the suspense. Yeah. There are some of these some of these imagery just straight up startling in and of itself. 
like the for one sequence is pretty remarkable. That's and, right. Yeah, it's well, just, especially how it starts. Yeah, yeah. Because it shows a, a horizon that's on like what looks shot. to be an endless sunset. Yeah, and the silhouettes of the soldiers one by one descend mm-hmm. into the murk. And when the the federal team makes its first arrival, it's filmed from a vast overhead shot where the white buildings and the white streets have been bleached out by the sun have what looks to be a malignant injection by the black automobiles of the armored cars. You see this big black snake thing Mm -hmm. just getting embedded in the body of this, of the... Um, yeah, all the overhead Mexican shots landscapes are wonderful in this movie. Is it? I'm assuming Deacon shot this too. Yeah, no, Deacon's yes, yeah. Deacon's uh, did this. Uh, Deacon's and Villeneuve's co- collaboration just works to just wonderful effect here. Yes, and also, but also enhances what Villeneuve was also doing with the oppressiveness of the landscape that he did mm-hmm. so well in Incendies. It's shown even more as how oppressive and dangerous for sure. In, in um, Sicario. Now, while Sicario is so interesting in terms of its concerns on Earth, uh, Villeneuve moves past the Earth to look at, to give our societies and our look at communication a whole new perspective with a science fiction film, um, Arrival in 2016. It's about where humanity encounters a series of mysterious giant ships that appear all over the world. And linguist Amy Adams is called in to look for a way to communicate with the alien visitors so the motives for their um, uh, uh, arrival can be revealed to a naturally wary collaboration of Mm. nations who are feverishly monitoring the situation. This is actually my favorite of uh, Villeneuve's films. Mine too. And yeah, so. <laughs> oh, interesting. Now, why does it why does it become your favorite? Do you think it kind of culminates in what he in what he's done up to this point? I, I actually think it's a sep- it, for you. I think it separates a bit. Um, you know, I've been a little harsh on on some of the earlier ones, but this one is is right in my wheelhouse in that it's about communication. It's in a strong uh, tradition of some of the best uh, science fiction uh, UFO movies. I think it deserves comparison to Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Contact. Contact. Um, okay. Mm-hmm. E- even to an extent, you know, 2001. And what these films uh, all do is take this idea of of alien of alien visitations and really ask what what does this say about us yeah so we have grounded i think uh possibly the best performance uh in any of his films uh for me is is what amy adams does here she does so much with her eyes so much 
without words, which fits in with her character, who and is such tr- an utilizing counter to her mission. By the way, right? right. Her mission mm-hmm. is to utilize language, but her idea is that this communication should happen visually, and so you have really uh, uh, everything going on here. You have. These this ama- amazing visual sequences. You have wonderful performances uh, centering the film, and you have themes that resonate. I 100% agree. Um, I think what you said about Amy Adams is very true. Uh, I like my top three v- performances from all of his movies would be Benicio, Emily Blunt, and then Amy Adams here. I just, I think it's pretty remarkable. Um, the, the things that she can do, like you said, without outright speaking and you just, you, you, you get a, like a lot of conflict, a lot of internal conflict. Uh, but also I, I, I felt this way when it first opened up. Um, I, I thought it was good. I was in for something special and unique, from from this director, I mean, like maybe the opening does have like a hint of Malik with its montage of, you know, the, the her daughter and you know, kind of, kind of like frolicking together, kind of like yes. you know, uh, connecting on some sort of spiritual. There, there will nature. be frolicking, yes, <laughs> yes, and there's nothing wrong with that. And it also opens up with a piece by Max Richter, um, that's also used in a few movies, I think, uh, notably Shutter Island, but. It's it's one of the few pieces that like on its own I hear it and I tear up. So when I first saw this movie and saw that montage and they're playing this music, I'm like, I'm fucked. <laughs> I'm I'm gonna be gone. Um, and then of course like how he brings it full circle is that the the piece plays at the beginning of the movie and at the end, and that's done for thematic reasons. That's done to say that history is repeating itself, the cyclical nature, but also just once Amy Adams you know sort of absorbs this alien language her perceptions change. And I love that idea. And I love that idea about, you know, similar to contact is it's not necessarily all about these aliens, these other beings. It's about us and how we connect with one another and how we should be connecting with one another instead of alienating, no pun intended, ourselves. Right. So it's a a very special movie. And it also came out at a very vulnerable time in our own country with the election of somebody that – doesn't um, display these values of, you know, interpersonal interactions and wanting to communicate on a deeper level, and it's 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 kind of like a disheartening experience to some degree too because you're like, wake up, this is how we should be as a species. So it's like again maybe a little idealistic, and some people do kind of think the ending and the way things play out is very sentimental, um, but I, I it works for me. I, every every beat, there's nothing off in this movie for me whatsoever. I like how this is a movie that takes seriously the notion of something that is very, very hard to put across to people. What's a way of communicating with someone when you literally not only not know the words, you don't even know how to communicate in the the manner of visual or audio or whatever. Mm -hmm. How do you communicate people in a totally different dimension? And I think this is a point where the movie is tremendously successful because what is being communicated is an entire way of thinking about the world that's different than the way we're used to. And I also want to add that Amy Adams as well, she does everything that's asked for her in this performance. And 
boy does she give it. She not only has this the Spielbergian sense of wonder, yeah. of course, at seeing these things, but also she has these giant depths of regret and mm-hmm. depression and the feeling of the weight of the world is on her mission and she's able to bring it off as you said brad in the most subtlest of ways and one of the things that reveals the depths of her performance is something we can't really discuss without getting into some spoiler territory right Mm. so from here on it's spoiler time after this point you will be spoiled on details (laughs) you're better off finding out and making these discoveries yourself right because the language that Amy Adams is taught from the aliens is a pretty complex uh, scientific idea of that uh, time is not linear, that what has happened before, what has happened, what happens in the future uh, can all be viewed as a circle through this language. It, it, it makes linear time meaningless. That leads to uh, a couple very interesting uh, aspects of the film. One, one is which it provides another way for us to communicate with each other as nations as we see yeah. various countries trying to leave the, the conversation, become hostile, misunderstand words uh, from the aliens, but also we find out something about Amy Adams' uh, personal life. She has a daughter who uh, would die at a young age uh, of cancer. We see this at the very beginning, and so what we assume is that this is a flashback. But what we find out when we get to the end and we understand the structure of the alien's language is that she has not had this child yet. And We're she, experiencing time differently. Right. <laughs> as a That's result. Right. Exactly. Yeah. It, it, right. It is so wonderfully successful at showing how we can think, how we are able to think of things in a new yeah. way. And I, that's what kind of pisses Even, me off when people are like, oh, that's just, that's just like a, you know, a gimmick, a trick at the end of the movie. Like people felt like their wool was, be, was pulled over their eyes. I'm like, it actually ties into the thematic nature of the film but also what the aliens actually do to her we get to experience in right some exactly way. because right, it makes yes, clear that she right. she is changed biologically yeah by knowing this language mm-hmm. that raises questions is that if we all were to you know we see that she's published a book if everyone learns language will everyone be changed biologically right. but it also leads to a, a troubling part yeah, of the plot that, which is the nuts. idea that she knows that her her daughter is going to die at a young age uh, she uh, becomes uh, romantically involved with the Jeremy Renner character yeah. after the action of the film, does not tell him about this, mm-hmm. and goes ahead and has the baby, is the mother, lets what, uh, lets what we saw uh, begin happily and end tragically happen. And that, that's a morally amb- ambiguous place to be she's doing something that seems out of character for her Mm -hmm. that seems like it could be considered selfish sure but at the same time if we are buying this idea that she has changed that this non-linear way of thinking changes us profoundly 
then this decision is not based on how we would assume we would make such decisions. Mm. Mm. There's two different aspects of that decision that she makes. One of which is you brought up was that the ethical question, if you have this foreknowledge, do you bring somebody into the world knowing of all the suffering that, that would result for that person? And that I, is ethically a very fascinating question because in a way it kind of reflects on the human condition too because it's something that, that people whose offspring might get a recessive gene for a deadly disease, for example, it's something that they have to face Every for, day. Yeah, sure, for, yeah, and I think sense. that in that way, it's a tribute to the movie when you see it and when you look at these scenes in a new way, it leads to these really interesting thoughts, thoughts which is, of course, one of the benefits of communication, right? Mm -hmm. and oh, yeah, like, yeah, for it, sure. It fits that so wonderfully. However, there is another question that you don't tell Jeremy Renner within which you had this union to produce this child and you don't make him aware of this. And that, to me, is just plain old ethically wrong. And it makes her a, it makes her a, a flawed person. As much as Amy Adams' performance through most of the film made me feel affection for her and was very uh, open and moving, when it is revealed that she doesn't tell her husband what she knows and that he leaves her because of that, my reaction to that was, was, well, yes, of course he would leave, as anyone would, if you found out that information was being kept from, from yes. you. And, and so is she a flawed character? Absolutely. Sure. It's, it's, it's another level to her character. Someone who makes a her, kind of a horrendous mistake. Mm -hmm. and, I mean, I'm not saying that it's a, you know, a mistake that we should forgive or accept, but at the same time, it's okay to portray a character that makes a tragic mistake like like she does and and you know not telling him yeah that's that is ethically wrong yeah um, the and decision that she ultimately makes I don't know if that's necessarily right or wrong and I think I like the fact that the film plays in that gray area as yeah. opposed to like spelling it all out for the audience to me though arrival suffers from a slightly bigger problem and the problem comes from a, a theory that I've had I've, I may have mentioned it a couple times on director's club already about how every movie in reality is two movies because mm. the first if you're lucky and don't get spoiled because the first movie you just don't know how things go and no matter how much you value when you see this movie the second time, you will never have that experience of the first That's viewing true. because you'll know what things happen. Right. Arrival is an amazing first movie because those revelations and the change in perspective fit the theme of communication and the need for it and the value of it so well that it is just great to experience the first time. The second time, though... It's Unfor just as great. No, Unfortunately, it is the difference between seeing a magic trick and then seeing a magic trick where the case is on the transparent side. When I look at Amy Adams's character and some of the decisions that I was wondering about the first time I saw the movie, now, to me, come blaringly obvious that they're there as an attempt to misdirect. That they're there so that 
we don't realize that what she's doing is actually looking into the future, not the past. For example, she ha in the beginning, she has a discussion with her mother. And that mother never comes up while she's investigating the aliens. And this is a mother who's shown concern to her and her situation. If there was a dead child, you'd think it would be brought up. But it mm. isn't. And it's, not, and it's deliberately not brought up because if you found that out, you'd realize that this right. kid is not in existence yet. Well, and so the movie shows its hand for me, unfortunately, the second time I see it. And I understand the mechanics. I see the gears working to get us to that imagery mm. and that feeling that was so effectively brought out. And I think you're correct that that is the trick the movie is playing. I don't have a problem with that because the dramatic basis of the movie is so strong sure. that I, I think it can it yeah. can take that kind of twisty thing. Whereas if the film was all about the twist and had nothing but the twist, I probably would feel more negatively towards it. But when, when you build... Uh, a, a film on such a solid narrative here, something that, that happens here more so than in Villeneuve's other films, yeah. you know, yes, you do have, you do have a little, uh, a little trick that's, uh, that's being played on the audience, but it's thematically coherent to the film. Yes. It 100% is. percent agree. It is, it is thematically <laughs> but, correct, but when a little more, and a little more. for you on a second viewing. Or yeah, because, because, her actions don't tie to me to her emotional journey, mm. her emotional mm. arc. When I see her do these motivations where before I was seeing emotional ambiguity, before I'm seeing a direct thing, oh, you're doing this to yeah. get me as an audience member to think something. So, Except that it, it kind of is about the idea of nonlinear time. And this trick also helps us sort of understand that because we're being told the story in a strange way. Sure. Yeah, the, I like my, the I like the unstuck in time approach. And I mean this stems to the fact that like the, one of the first books I fell in love with was Slaughterhouse 5. Mm -hmm. And so anytime that, you know, um well it's not really a trope, but I guess it's just a device or a, a way to tell a story. Um, is utilized effectively yeah. and leads to an emotional catharsis of some kind. Yeah. It uh, works. And yeah, and I think it works actually much better in Slaughterhouse Five. I would watch yeah. Slaughterhouse Five over and over. I would watch Pink Floyd's The Wall, which works a similar <laughs> level sure, over yeah. and over. Because there, when you jump in from one world war to the present day, it comes from the character's feeling of look actually looking back at that part in their life. Yeah. And what their concerns are in a way that I did not see, unfortunately mm. for me, in, in Arrival. And if I just see an appreciation of how it was manipulated the second time I see Arrival, whereas the first time I see Arrival, I feel the, as well as appreciate it. Well, I'm glad you appreciate it and like it because I know people who don't and I want to smack them in the face. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> that almost seems like a pretty good segue to talk about all the smacking going on yeah, there's in his smacking. next movie, there's some... including smacking from super fans, mm -hmm, where mm -hmm. um, he has a really big shoes to fill and he gets a very ambitious, in every sense of the word, to tackle a legendary take on when his film after arrival 
Blade Runner 2049 in 2017, out from out from this year. And this is a film that goes and returns to the world of that of future LA of this legendary movie, 1982 movie, and featuring Ryan Gosling playing Agent K, a who an investigator who makes an amazing discovery about one of the human-like robot replicants from the earlier film. Yeah. Yeah. That says it all me, about your impression. Let me kind of give you my prejudice here, which is that unless you've got something really special up your sleeve, i.e. Mad Max Fury Road, it's probably best not to create sequels to classic uh, films 30 years uh, plus. Um, there was actually a lot of things in the story that I did find engaging. I would have found them much more engaging if they were telling an original story and not cons- constantly trying to connect to the original Blade Runner, which, just as it, as it would have to, looms so large in the way we watch this film that I don't think it's, it's really able to function on its own. Everything in it is some kind of response, uh, to the original, but I don't, without breaking new ground, really kind of taking ideas, uh, that the, the ideas that made the, uh, the original Blade Runner so, so unforgettable and twisting them around a bit, giving them a new angle and asking us to look at it like we haven't seen it before. I walked into this movie with pretty low expectations despite being such a fan of the director because as I like you were saying I just didn't have high hopes for a sequel this late and also what story could possibly be told because like the way the original Blade Runner ends is very satisfying with Rutger Hauer's speech mm-hmm. with ev- like everything about the way it, it resolves itself is quite magnificent um and it took me like three viewings but i finally loved blade runner um and so you know i walk into this one and i'm kind of like eh, i don't know how i'm gonna feel about this and on again like on a technical level on a visual level i thought it was pretty remarkable and the score is great uh i really hope roger deakins gets nominated because like this film bombed like nobody's business, um, which is so sad. But as did the original Blade yeah, Runner. Yeah, that's true. No, 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 people didn't respond to it initially. He honors the spirit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, why not? Um, I saw this in IMAX in an empty theater, which was sad. But I saw this in like you know the the big IMAX screen. It's like you're so enveloped by this movie as an experience, um, but also it does kind of get tropey. I think it gets like just the confrontation with, you know, the the evil uh, female cyborg mm-hmm. character is kind of underwhelming for me overall. Like, I mean, I I do again appreciate, you know, what what ultimately results. It's a satisfying ending, I would say, but like just kind of the, the choice to go that route with 
oh, we're going to get, you know, get uh, crash the plane in the water and then have her, have this big confrontation take place. Didn't really work for me. And also, you know, I know we talked about this off off uh, mic, but I didn't I was not a fan of the sequence that felt pretty long to me. And the only moment in the movie I felt went on too long was just the uh, the sur- the sex surrogate um, hologram uh, slash you know um, robot thing. <laughs> I don't know how to describe it, but it, it felt like such a direct kind of reference to uh, what takes place in her, which was a little bit more emotionally resonant for me. Uh, but here, at least, it's visually interesting with the two women kind of layered on top of one another. But I also just kind of felt um, it's like I just shrugged that off. I didn't think it was necessary to the overall story. It's very important for to point out where we stand on the Blade Runner scale. There needs to be a Blade Runner scale <laughs> of how much you've seen the movie, the original film, how much you love the original film, and how much you want to see the original film represented in the sequel. I'll say for me, my perspective is I'm a super fan of the original. I love it when I first saw it with the narration. I've loved it multiple times. I've tr- uh, in without narration, I've triple dipped in purchasing the movie. And at the same time, I was very, very skeptical because I was I feel like Blade Runner, the original Blade Runner, was such a magical moment, a great confluence of the performances. And uh, Ridley Scott's direction and the set design. I'm obviously we live in a post Blade Runner world in the sense that so many of these science fiction movies would not have their look yeah. of a dystopian future. There would be it's a so dark in- city if it wasn't from Blade Runner, right? Mm-hmm. And it's informed by the great, like cinematic construction set that was built from the original Blade Runner. And that really surprised me um, that on a visual level this film didn't seem that ambitious, the sequel, I mean, because mm. the the original Blade Runner, when you first see that cityscape, your breath is taken away. Now, part of that is because it's at a time when such special effects were brand new and, and, and you are seeing something new, but now we're in a sequel taking place however many years later, and there's kind of two modes. There's in the city and outside the city. Outside the city, there doesn't seem to be a lot of creativity as far as environments. There seems mostly to be fog and what what actually would logically result from a polluted world. So that there's logical consistency there. But then when you look at uh, the city itself, it pretty much looks like a CG version of the original Blade Runner special a replicated effects. replicated version? Just maybe? a bit. Just a bit. Yeah. But I, I don't know. And 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 truly I, I don't want I don't think a movie lives and dies by its uh its special effects. But but when I think of the standards set by the original, the take your breath away moments that were that that come from uh visual elements of, of the original Blade Runner I was surprised that this film was not more ambitious. Mm. Well, we have an interesting ethical question because yeah. if you're going to, which is a question that Ridley Scott himself failed in his film Prometheus. I think Ridley Scott was trying to be ambitious, but his ambitions 
we're at odds with the tra- the trappings of the of the alien story of what an alien thing has to be. Sure. So so Villeneuve had a really tough thing to do because he could not be he couldn't give the enemy treatment to Blade Runner. Yeah. That would have been a colossal failure, right? If he literally went way extreme with, with what the replicants were. It would people would rebel because they have an expectation of what Ridley Scott's original film was supposed to be about. So what is it, quote unquote, supposed to be about? I think what it was was an attempt to give a noir sensibility to a very chaotic and uncertain future mm-hmm, world. Mm-hmm. And I think it was to give that feeling, not intellectualize it, but I yeah. think in Villeneuve, you have an intellectual who's trying to put thought in to how do I express it? And I, and I think like to both the, experiences. I like the mood, atmospheric approach. Yeah, that is less about you know engaging you on an intellectual level, but just filling you with a sense of um, you know either paranoia or dread or just questioning your identity without outright doing it. But yeah. in this case, I yeah. think it's a little different. And See, I liked, I, I like both approaches. Mm-hmm. Yet, like I didn't think, and I might feel differently if I watched Blade Runner twenty forty nine three times. Maybe mm-hmm. I'll grow to love it mm-hmm. more. Yeah. That's kind of what I'm hoping for. There was a lot of controversy in when the movie was comes out. Like it's two and a half hours. How how why do you have as a two and a half hours when the original movie manages to do what it did so well in uh, in an hour and a half? Yeah. But what I think people might be missing is that what the movie did originally was so well is not the story. The original Blade Runner story is not that great. It actually has some. Terrible coincidences that would put some of uh, yeah, some yeah, of some of that. enemy to shame, but that's cool, and everyone is cool about it at least today because the movie was not about that. Right. And Villeneuve honors that it's the mood, so mm. he gives these. I think he made the correct decision to give these scenes time to sink in, so you are in the atmosphere of the of the future world. You're yeah, in I was the surpri- atmosphere I was of the outside. How it didn't feel long. At yeah, all. that's right. And that's a really nice I don't know, did you feel that way, Brad? Oh, I felt it felt long to it me. Fe- did it feel uh, did it feel yeah. long? But Brad, did it feel long for you from the very beginning? You were like when you first see the overlook of the of the farming community and you go, Okay, get on with it? No, no, it was actually the amount of time uh, as Jim alluded to, uh, spent with the uh, virtual reality girlfriend. I thought and I didn't yeah. I didn't hate that conceit. I got what they were doing there, but y- when you talk about pacing and length, I just thought they were milking that a lot, mostly because they needed somebody for Ryan Gosling to talk to. <laughs> oh, hmm, interesting. So you you got the chance to see the mechanics. You saw the mechanics at work right off the bat <laughs> at that moment. You're like, why am I looking at this holographic lady? Right. It's they have, like, be an exposition area for, for yeah, Gosling's right. character. And, and I should mention the point at which the, the film loses me is actually in its inability to create uh, villains that are in any way interesting or, or coherent. The uh, mm. what's the guy's name? The Joker from Suicide Squad. Jared, Jared, Le- Jared Leto. Jared Leto is horrible in this. Hmm. He I, I acts say he's with horrible, his horrible, but he's forgettable. Yeah, I mean, I, well, he doesn't 
do anything. Yeah, I mean, he acts with his contact lenses. He does. <laughs> he does not put forward uh, any any kind of menace. Uh, his motivations are murky. So it's kind of like once I realized they weren't going to do anything with the villain and there wasn't going to be any kind of conflict that was meaningful to me, mm-hmm. we're left with Gosling, who, who does... I don't, have a, I don't have any problem with Gosling's performance. It was appropriate to the movie. Mechanically appropriate, mechanic, you would say? Yeah, yeah, I mean, he was yeah. believable as an artificial being. So. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, he was, he's been good in other things. Oh. But, but, <laughs> yeah, sure. Ouch, ouch. Because, I like Gosling. I, I think he does... He kind of takes his drive character and, you know, kind of uh, subverts it, but also brings new life to it here, I think. I mean, he's, he's not so, like, you know... Um, monosyllabic <laughs> as he is in dry where it's just like here you want a toothpick <laughs> you know but it, like here he's kind of yeah like he finds a nice balance between what's expected in terms of his humanity but also just um question like he's questioning his identity like we would as human beings essentially and i think he pulls that off pretty well overall mm-hmm. I love everything with the holographic girlfriend. Mm. because, And I think you guys are selling it short. I really do. Because I think the way that he, quote unquote, helps her, he keeps giving her tools to give her more agency. I think there was a very touching scene where she is put out in the rain. And it's done really brilliantly with special effects to show how her skin her is adjusting to mm-hmm. being able to feel the rain. Yeah. And this... I and like I think that moment, a, yeah. and I think in a really and in, I think the performance by um, Anna de Amras is really amazing in that because you see this quote unquote joy on her face, and she's getting another level of appreciation of the world that she as an avatar didn't have before. Right, right. And so I I like how. He's taking this premise and says, we all know about Blade Runner's about how replicants are human or not, mm-hmm. but let's just give from the replicant's point of view. And it also works backwards by putting in the notion of birth. Now, I want to take a, a sidestep to say, I honestly think you may, you may like Blade Runner, but I think the more Villeneuve movies you see, the more you will like Blade Runner. Because, dude, it's kind of all there. Yeah, Look at the concerns about birth. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That was such a concern in Incendies. Right? Look at the idea of twins and look at how that relates to the, the twins in Incendies. Look at how the buildings are used to show a claustrophobic environment in a way different. Um, in original Blade Runner, the buildings are shown as to be out of control, but it's out of control outwards. Right, right. Things are spinning out there, but it's more enclosed in 2049 in the way the buildings in Incendies, in the way the buildings in Sicario are enclosing and, claustropho- and claustrophobic and f- fitting in on. Mm-hmm. And you look at the concern that has been overriding his work that David Byrne sense, how did I get here? And Oh, there's just an identity an intel- crisis right. all, you know, everywhere, and yes. including here. When you look over at Villeneuve's body of work, you're going to find a whole lot in Blade mm-hmm. Runner that turns out to be his. Yeah, I he's, don't doubt that. He is the one. He, he really gives like an altruism, a subconscious level, I mm-hmm. think, in the films that he does. That There's things that like concern him. Yeah. And then the question is, is he going to be able to put those personal concerns into another beloved uh, property? 
Well, right, because his next film is supposedly he's working on uh, uh, another take on Frank Herbert's Dune story, yeah. right? Third time's a charm. Fingers crossed. <laughs> I don't know. I'm again, like I was skeptical about Blade Runner, and I wound up liking it at least. So we'll see. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, I'm not crazy about. I, I haven't read the books or anything, so I'm not. I don't have like a huge devotion to the Dune world or the Dune franchise. Mm-hmm. But uh, I just, it's one of the few Lynch movies I don't like very much. It just doesn't work, and yeah, you can and tell. I'm, I'm actually a Dune super fan, Jim. That's and amazing. I, I'm such a I'm such a super fan that I really like a lot of what Lynch does <laughs> in that film. I think in his visual creativity is really amazing. Yeah, parts of it for sure. Yeah. Unfortunately, the book and the ideas of the book are a lot more about than mm-hmm. visual creativity. There's a hell of a lot of social things and cultural things and religious things. I'm no. sure Villeneuve is going to do that. He's going yeah. to incorporate that. That's right. Sure. Look at mm-hmm. look at the look at the themes he manages to encompass in the film so far. Right. For me, anyway, I look at what he managed to do in all these earlier films, and I look at the scope of what he has to do in or he's asked to do in Dune, and for me personally. I'd love to see what he comes up with, even if it turns out to be a failure. Well, I love people who try for films, try yeah, to go yeah, for the yeah. gusto for films, and it, even if it doesn't end up working. Well, we've had a lot of different perspectives uh, on all these films, but I think uh, the thing that we all agree on is this is a director with great potential. Mm-hmm. And you just don't know if, his, if the next movie he makes is going to be uh, something that could be incredibly special. And uh, yeah. Dune is, is, is a book loved by so many. And if it can be done justice in a way that it seems like it hasn't been done so far, that's going to be a, a, a great moment in science fiction. Right. I concur. I'm, I'm so excited for whatever this guy does next. Yeah, and I mean, you've seen, you've seen one of his films earlier, and he's uh, with Arrival. He shows he gets the spirit of science fiction. Yep. And with Sicario and Incendies, he seems he honors the political side. Boy, if he can get all of these things in an orbit, mm-hmm. in, in his own circle. Let's get some spiders in Dune. That's all we need. <laughs> Spider thopters. We should do something that uh, I know that me and Patrick used to do on Director's Club. That um, It's like a throwback, but what would be your top three Denis... Verneuve films. Huh. What would be your top three? I'll go first. Okay. Um, number three would be Enemy. Number two would be Sicario. And number one, of course, is Arrival. My uh, number three would be Sicario. Number two would be uh, Incendies. And number one, Arrival. For me, his best work so far is prisoners because oh. it's a case not just because of the way how it surpasses its genre trappings which as i've said is something that i value a lot when a film can transcend like mm-hmm, such mm-hmm. mundane origins but also i think it delivers on its sensibility in the most consistently successful way i think it follows on its themes and doesn't stray from its path in uh, the best of all his films and puts its message to a great point and a resolution that illuminates like those those ideas. Yeah, your points made me th- want to watch it again at some point. And-, and I have to unfortunately go and 
balk on the other two, and the reason is because there's four movies are tied for second place. <laughs> I, I, I like a lot of what Incendes does. I obviously like a lot of what Blade Runner does and a lot of what Arrival does. However, I think they do things in different ways and they all have values and flaws in such different ways, I literally can't do it. So for me, I think where, it, where everything manifested itself the most wonderfully was Prisoners, so that would be my top the that's a that's a good perspective to have. Thank you. So I'm, I'm always curious about ranking sometimes, even though it is completely arbitrary and uh, unnecessary. And but we're going to get a lot of that in your next episode when you do uh, you and, yeah, and Patrick I'm, do the end of the year. I'm excited for that because we often get into arguments and it gets it, we have a nice healthy debate. Um, you can go back and look. I like I, some of the best episodes we did. I think are those episodes just because. It allows us to reflect on the year that was and just, you know, I mean, I know everybody does it. I know every film critic on the planet does it, but we try and make it fun. So hopefully people will tune in for that episode. Great. And uh, What's next for what, you guys? Our biggest one we're most anticipating is a look at the films of Akira Kurosawa. <gasps> Merry Christmas to all. <laughs> And New Year's and Arbor Day and Labor Day next year because this is a person who has reached heights of creativity up to the level of Orson Welles but has had an opportunity to make many, many, many more amazing films. Right. I'm really looking forward to delving into those. That's going to be a lot of fun. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. And Jim, is there any other uh, endeavors that you would like to mention uh, that are coming up, such as uh, your Voices and Visions cast? You know, mostly uh, Voices and Visions is kind of like, I'm just going to do it when I can. You know, it's like, even with most podcasts, you try to set out to do a certain schedule, like a bi-weekly or weekly. It's basically now whenever I can do it. <laughs> because like putting pressure on myself like that is just not healthy. So, yeah, there'll be episodes and interviews uh, out and about probably until around Christmas. And then I'll take another Christmas break of sorts to work on my next album. Um, but right. yeah, go to VoicesVisions.net. I am starting to slowly but surely write movie reviews again. Awesome. All right, great. And uh, you guys listening in, we're very grateful that you were able to uh, uh, join us on this journey out for the, this director, who I agree with Brad. We, I'm very eagerly anticipating what he will go and uh, uh, do next. And if you want to let us know what you'd like us to, to do next or criticisms or thoughts of what we said today, uh, feel free to give us an email at directorsclubpodcast at gmail.com. We can be found at iTunes at Directors Club Podcast. Our episodes are online at directorsclubpodcast.com, which also includes the entire archive of classics episodes with um, Jim and Patrick. <laughs> and we are, can be found on uh, Twitter at DC Podcast and on Facebook at Directors Club Podcast. Thanks for listening, guys, and catch you next time on another episode of the Director Club. And Jim, thank you so much for joining us. And thank you guys for having me. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers, and happy holidays, everyone.
Hello, and welcome to Enemy Cast. <laughs> this is where we discuss enemy every week. <laughs> there are, there's a podcast that does that. That does like one that watches Grown Ups Two every week or something. Yes, that's right. There was one. Right, it was I think called. No, it's literally the literal URL of the site is called theworstideaever.com. Yeah, and that was their idea is to watch Grown Ups every single day and make a podcast over their impressions. I, don't, I think it was every yeah. week, or was it every day? Some, some, uh, some, that would kill you. You know what? Every, every week, every day, still not just the yeah, worst yeah. idea ever. Even once. <laughs> even once. Even <laughs> once. to avoid it altogether. Right, exactly. Yeah, I've not even, yeah, I've not seen him once in a lifetime. To quote another philosopher, David Burns' lines.